I had a pilot on podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler us and travel with portable speakers and bother us scans. Wish I had a million pounds. Wish I had a million pounds. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all the million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beaver Man. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this world had water in it. These kids are spending all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help us like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better riding speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew on a lime tree. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I might hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kinda understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like gambling. It's so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more facts about it. Focused on myself. Can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. Every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. And welcome to episode 73 of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we are coming... Together at the end of a long week for me. No, no, not how you guys are feeling, but it was productive, and I'm looking forward to the weekend. As always, we can talk about anything that's on your mind. But this week, I had the great pleasure of talking to Vijay Prasad, who you guys have been recommending for a very, very long time, and I think did not disappoint. We talked about a range of subjects, but I was most interested in this little back and forth we had about whether or not the left was too hard on those among us who uh, err, shall we say, or who don't pass some litmus test, as it's some, sometimes described, um, you know, somewhat derisively with the implication that the litmus test is too high or somehow unfair. Uh, let's get right to it. Last week, I spoke for a long time with Norm Finkelstein, and it didn't give us much time for people to call in with their questions. So let's get right to the queue. Fahim, what's on your mind this evening? My God, Bree, thank you so much for bringing Vijay Prashad on and a while back bringing Matthew Ho on. Two months ago, you didn't know who Matthew Ho was, and then what a brilliant interview with uh, him. I, I am so, so very grateful, and thank you so much for bringing uh, Vijay um, on. I've, uh, uh, Vijay was the one who literally uh, uh, made me think of why to uh, suspect uh, the uh, 
R2P uh, doctrine in such a simple uh, way that I could explain to others. Uh, and I really, really appreciated you bringing him on. The thing that I'm confused about, uh, though, in your title, uh, first of all, uh, his uh, last name is with a S-H-A-D, not uh, S-A-D. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, so, but we'll correct that. Yeah, so the thing that I was confused uh, about was when you uh, state that we disagreed somewhat on the uh, left uh, is in fact eating itself. I don't know where, where I saw disagreement uh, with uh, you uh, on uh, him. I, I think he <clears throat> made some points that I, uh, especially coming from the anti-war, uh, anti-imperialist side, I have often been uh, confused of the fact of uh, why uh, the uh, left, like especially, uh, for, for example, in the Palestinian Solidarity uh, Movement in time uh, during uh, the uh, initial wing uh, wave of the Syria conflict, why there was uh, disagreement on uh, that, because I looked at it from a perspective of like, okay, the same uh, imperialist forces in the U.S. that are have had your boot on uh, your necks for decades are the ones who are basically uh, 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 siding uh, with another regime uh, change uh, operation. So can't you guys see that? Uh, uh, how hard uh, is uh, that? And also when you mention about Black Lives Matter, one of the things I did agree with uh, both you and him was uh, the fact of it reminded me of the time when like Maduro had uh, a uh, steak with that uh, steak bay or salt bay or whatever the guy's name is who does that salt thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I looked at it and, and, I'm, and folks are like uh, uh, pillaring uh, him and, and I'm like, okay, uh, here is a country being choked by uh, the uh, U.S. and uh, somebody had a meal and you're basically going to give up on the whole, uh, uh, not uh, stand in solidarity with folks who are basically trying to get the shackles of uh, uh, imperialism off uh, them for just this little uh, thing. So, uh, but I'd love to hear from you uh, as to, uh, I mean, what, what, what was the disagreement that I, I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to see that because I didn't see much. No, there wasn't much. I'm just referring to the fact that he's pushed back against the idea that I should be, or we should, or that the Black Lives Matter um, national group leader should be criticized and to the extent that they are over the misuse of funds. And that he suggested that people over-focus on the purchase of the Hype House in California. Just that. Okay, yeah, because I looked at it and I'm like, well, okay, if you're just going to give up on the goal of the movement for uh, these small, uh, I mean, he gave a really good comparison, as always, of like, here is this, uh, uh, the powers to be who are uh, basically uh, 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 co-opting uh, uh, the the uh, aspects of a of certain movements and basically whitewashing uh, their uh, 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 
actions uh, and you're basically just focusing on these little uh, things. I, I think he had a really uh, good uh, uh, point on, on uh, that, uh, that. And so that's why I was like, well, I didn't see much uh, uh, if any of the d disagreement. But either way, I just wanted to say thank you so much. And what was really funny on a lighter note uh, was uh, when you asked the question of what is to be done? I was uh, like, okay, I've seen VJ wear a t-shirt uh, saying Lenin, Lenin, Lenin. And I was like, okay, VJ should have said that, okay, hold on for a second, Brie. Let me come back in like two, uh, 20 seconds and then come up with that shirt. Like what is to be done? This guy told you a, a while back. And what is the answer? What ha what is Lenin 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 convey? No, no, no. I mean, when uh, it, it was basically it was his a book uh, because he uh, Vijay often mentions uh, uh, Lenin uh, and uh, he would talk about uh, the uh, way the uh, Soviets uh, it was basically a worker peasant alliance and all. So I just I mean Vijay can be very comical at times and it's funny. Uh, so I just uh, th thought uh, love uh, him uh, uh, throwing a sense of humor uh, mm. in, in there. So that was just my uh, uh, thinking. So, but anyways, just wanted to say uh, I really, really appreciate you uh, uh, today's interview. Thank you so much. I'm really gl glad that you uh, enjoyed it. Thank I, you. I really appreciate that feedback. Thank you for him and keep okay. the faith. Thank you. All right, I'm skipping around. Uh, v. You're up. What's on your mind this evening? Oh, um, V wasn't ready. Okay. Omar, what's on your mind this evening? Um, I'll keep it quick since I was on, on the previous call in, uh, in the week. Um, I just wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit more on the whole subject, the dreaded subject of, of organizing. Mm -hmm. um, because... Yeah. VJ today brought up, it, it was a good thought and something that I've been thinking a, a lot about. In terms of how organizing, ju just the, the way we, we think about the term, like he started even mentioning basic stuff of organizing like sports leagues and, you know, some basic commun community level um, organizing, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I just want to ask your thoughts because when I think about organizing is such a vague term and I look around in terms of what, what could left organizing look like in my community. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, okay, from a secular standpoint, I mean, you can do sports and that seems like a great idea. Um, gardening. I don't know. I mean, because as opposed to it kind of drawing it back to the, the normal episode, like, you know, religious groups, churches and stuff like that. I mean, those seems like great spots for community, um, people coming together, people, um, people talking to each other. And, and I just think there's no parallel to that on the left, given our, our secular position on, on things. And I just, I, I just always think about that. I know about times Omar, you're breaking up. Ooh, Omar, you're breaking up. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Ooh, no, Omar. Sorry, I can't hear you again. I'm sorry, Omar. It's real, like, um, digital glitchy. 
but I mean, I, I got your, uh, you're still, I, I'm sorry. It's still not legible, but I, I got your, I think the main thrust of your point about how do you do this absent, um, the kind of traditional religious institutions. And the first point I would say is that I think a lot of leftists are religious. I mean, the reality is that most people are religious. So to the extent that there's a very niche online kind of like liberal arts school graduate version of a leftist who's in DSA and literally worked for the Bernie campaign. Yeah, sure. Maybe they're more secular, but we still live in an overwhelmingly religious country. And I, you know, even people who don't like go to church often were raised in a religious tradition. And so I don't, I mean, I don't think the question is so much why can't, you know, what are you supposed to do on the left since we're not religious as much as how can the left more effectively get in touch with their religious communities that they belong to? And why are those religious communities um, so much less progressive than they were, you know, 50 years ago? Um, but I, I do also just think it's part of this bigger question. This is what I asked him too. I, you know, I, 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 I think that he's right, you know, about the kind of, the, you know, it's like the Nevada example of, just being there and setting up sports leagues and doing cookouts and, and having that longer term presence. But I also do feel like there's something very intimidating about it. Hi. Yeah. I, I can hear you again. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're really broken up. I, I can hear that you're talking, but I can't hear what you're saying. Okay. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it up. Okay. Yeah. I was just saying, I do think it's intimidating, um, regardless in, in the context of a city where it's just, it's so atomized. It's really difficult for me to think of. It's like, I don't, I can't join like a running group. <laughs> I can't join like, uh, uh, I am struggling to join like a, like a, like a pickleball league. And the idea that I'm gonna organize my community, I don't have one. So, I mean, I, I do think that that is a real deficit. Like, the idea of going to, like, you know, I had this idea in my head of, you know, I used to watch the Gilmore Girls, and they used to go to their town hall meetings, and it's, like, 30 people, and they all know each other because it's, you know, Stars Hollow, Connecticut, or whatever. And, you know, there's this lovely ideal of it going down like that. But in a city, you know, even myself, I have to confess a lot of – um ignorance about how that would even work and what that would even be like. And it doesn't seem especially appealing in the same way that a more intimate setting might feel that the kind of social aspect that seems so charming on a show like that wouldn't exist in a, like a bigger scaled community. And I'm not saying that as an excuse. I'm just trying to be honest about how people probably feel when they hear stuff like that. Cause that's how I hear it feels a little overwhelming and it's not that I disagree with that as an approach. I just am all uh, just in my own life trying to work out what that would look like and struggling a little bit. So I have a lot of sympathy for people who are also looking for ways to participate that don't involve creating a whole sense of community out of whole cloth that hasn't existed in like decades. I'm sorry the connection wasn't so great, but I, I appreciate your question, Omar. All right, A, what's on your mind? Hello, hello, can you hear me? I can, eh? Hey, good morning from India. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing, Bria? And you, I know you had COVID. Are you all good now? I'm all good. It's just a long week, but I'm feeling fine. What's on your mind this evening? Thanks for well, asking. Uh, <laughs> great interview as always. 
um i mean i have a lot of thoughts i want to know what did like uh what you were just saying to omar as well i mean the fact that uh vijay boiled it down to you know this kind of ineffable sort of cultural quality of mm-hmm. you know connecting with each other and so on i mean did, do you th- did you find that to be a ray of hope or did you find that like me to be even more kind of demoralizing it's almost more demoralizing you yeah. know as i sit i don't mean to make everything like through a lens of rising either but mm-hmm. you know I, i i i like robbie i genuinely mm-hmm. like robbie we have fun on the show But I sit there and I I look at the way that he addresses issues. Like today there were a bunch of back and forth about labor. Katie Halper came on as a guest uh and she was talking about this new law that's trying to basically uberfy the rest of the workforce in was it mm-hmm. Texas? I can't even remember anymore. It basically has uh workers able to, you know, employees are able to get workers to sign away all their rights to overtime and minimum wage and all these other kinds of things. Mm. And It really, you know, I know what a libertarian is. It's not shocking to me, but it is a little bit surprising to me that there's so much like the tone in the country is that someone, you know, like Robbie can say fully, you know, employers should be able to ask you to do whatever you want and if you don't want to do it, just don't take the job. Hmm. You know, just like say it like a matter of fact like that. And to not expect fire and brimstone and, you know, negative public opinion to knock him off his feet. And in fact, mm-hmm. he's right. He, you know, most of the people in the comments agree with him. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and I don't know. It feels like when we, were, when we were arguing about Medicare for all on some level. We got past the arguing stage. Some people would argue about how you're going to pay for it. But most people accepted that there was something broken about the idea that your ability to get treated for a sickness is contingent on your, it's contingent yeah. on your employment right like everyone kind of yeah. like you you might not think we can have medicare for all but very few people by the end there were still arguing mm. that we like, we shouldn't like morally mm. that wouldn't be an ideal situation mm. but to hear people just fully say like you don't have a right to say any kind of working conditions mm. you're just an individual and you're in, and it's not like he's arguing either that well you should join a union and you should collectively bargain and so you can have power that you can you know you can wield against your employer no he's just fully <clears throat> saying uh, you as one worker have choices and you can vote with your feet hmm. and you can just waltz down the street and find a different <laughs> job if you don't like whatever your employer's doing and it's yeah. not that that's his belief that i'm really trying to get into right now but that that's a belief you can fully openly hold without any caveats and it doesn't strike people as fundamentally immoral and nonsensical the mm. way that it would i think in other countries and the way that it did in america 60 years ago mm. yeah and 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 how deeply unkind it is but i mean uh, what i struggled with in listening to this interview and i mean you know i was very taken with your line of inquiry because it dovetails with this sort of question i have i mean you know at the face on the face of it i have so much in common with vijay in terms of contextually you know i'm born and raised here in india i live here in india mm. but <clears throat> uh given that i mean uh, you know i'm a 90s kid and india opened its economy to i mean imp- basically imported neoliberal financial policy in 1991 which we call which we call our liberalization of our markets i've been raised in american hegemony you know mm-hmm. uh, so uh, in terms of culture etc uh, you know i often find much more in common with the west than with india and part of that is also this sort of shift away from a collectivistic 
view of society to an individualistic view of society. So, you know, I very much relate to like what you said about, you know, cities giving anonymity and sort of the atomized form of living we have. Um, it To me, it's while, of course, India does have a strong culture of organizing. And so when, you know, any large scale protests break out, I mean, I'm able to join them. But as an inherent instinct in me, it feels very out of reach. And, you know, I mean, I'm loath to sort of attribute things to age because it's usually too easy an attribution. But, I mean, when when Vijay and people of his uh, age, they speak of communities. I mean, you know, it's like, for instance, I wonder why, uh, like, what's more common amongst me and my cohort is to have online communities. Right. I, right. Uh, which is Which is hard. I mean, which is which in so many ways is the benefit of the information age that they're curated around one's interests or around one's identities and so on and so forth, as opposed to sort of just the village you're stuck in. But obviously then it's not the same kind of community in terms of there's not actual physical bodies you can organize into a collective. But is that necessarily a problem? Like I'm really asking, everyone always says, right? Everyone always says the internet's not real, log off, touch grass, blah, blah, blah. And like I get it, and I and I don't, you know, I'm I'm very timidly making this argument, hmm. but sometimes it does feel so overwhelming. The idea of real communities feels so overwhelming, <laughs> and like online is right there. And there have been times when, like, let's say in the context of the campaign, or let's say when I went to um, a, a Shama Swamp's uh, fundraiser in Seattle last summer, mm-hmm. like when I'll go to a place invited by someone who I know from online mm. and then I meet all the people in real life. And it's so lovely. Mm. Like being out on the campaign trail, whatever, going to some of these rooms it, and you meet people that you knew on Twitter. Like I remember meeting Isha legal in like Georgia or South Carolina or something during the Bernie campaign. She was just in one of these headquarters, you know, volunteering. And it's just like, so lovely. It's like, Oh, Hey Isha. Like, I feel like I actually know you. Mm. And, and so I don't know. I do feel like I have a community. I don't feel alone. I don't, yeah. you know, I couldn't get more than 10 people to come to my birthday party in DC, <laughs> but I, I don't actually feel alone because I do feel like the online people matter. I feel like the people in this call in chat matter, yeah. you know, in, in terms of my community. And it does feel a little weird that there don't seem to be many players in the like real life, you know, grown up organizing space that really validate those relationships or really, I think even have conversations about how we yeah. can wield those relationships strategically absolutely i completely agree i mean one thing that i'm always quite taken by that vijay speaks a lot about is the necessity of for compelling utopias Uh, Mm. i remember once he had an interview with uh, michael brooks where he spoke at length about uh, you know any movement is only as strong as the utopia it promises Mm. and uh, i think he referred to how bernie was a compelling utopia but being one man that's not a very durable utopia so uh, and so that's kind of a you know a way of thinking I've adopted, which is I wonder about uh, the utopia being offered in anything and how strong it is. Um, you know, for, like for instance, something you know at, at more personal level, like with something like therapy. You know, I got mm. to thinking that uh, while one goes to therapy hoping to quote unquote fix oneself, what ac- what therapy actually or more traditional therapy and you know what it actually promises is uh, that it'll give you tools to kind of manage life and not be dysfunctional which means that the utopia it's actually promising is a lot of work Mm. (laughs) Uh, like you know if you 
if you really are good about therapy what you end up with is a life that you can manage provided you put in the work now mm-hmm. work is no utopia of mine so <laughs> um so you know i found like therapy is no longer very compelling utopia for me so uh, like so when people like you know when pe- when someone like vijay speaks about organizing one's neighbor you know it i mean i think of my neighbor and i don't necessarily want to like you know bump shoulders with them i mean I, like <laughs> No, I get it. I was thinking about I'm literally like thinking about people in my building. So I was taking care of a friend's dog these last few days and walking the dog around. I've talked to more people in my building than ever because everyone wants to stop and talk to the dog. And it's like it feels so easy with the dog. When mm. I don't have the dog, it feels like pulling teeth. It's horrible. Like the yeah. the prospect of having to have a conversation <laughs> with people. Like I was I was in um SDC so everything has a there's always a pool. And I was in the pool over the 4th of July weekend and some of my friends had come to town and the pool was like filled with people. They were all kind of age cohorts and frankly, like class cohorts, obviously we're all living in the same building. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this. we chatted a little bit with some people, you know, there were a couple of nice young people who worked in the veterinarian's office down on the corner. I mean, there were a couple of nice conversations, but on the whole, it was kind of like really striking how we obviously knew some very intimate things about each other because we all literally lived in the same building. We were all doing the same thing. We all had this, like we were listening to the same music and we would hear each other's conversations and everyone went to the same schools and we still weren't talking to each other. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. man. It, it feels very daunting and, and, unless you have a dog. <laughs> and then you can organize around the dog. Yeah, I agree. And if if you'd allow me, I just want to weigh mm-hmm. a little bit on the on the abortion discussion mm-hmm. last time. I mean, you rightly did not were not really taking calls from us men last time, so <laughs> I can weigh in now. Um, so, so uh, on like again on a slightly personal level, I my sister I helped my sister through a fairly difficult abortion, mm. and uh, here in India, I mean, so far anyway, it's not a legal issue yet. Uh, mm. So I was able to uh, experience it for the, uh, you know, the, the sort of more profound or philosophical experience it can be, which mm. is, you know, just contending with something which is obviously quite weighty. And, and, and I mean, spared the experience of the woman herself. Of course, I was mm-hmm. able to have more thoughts than necessarily feelings about it. Mm. So, uh, uh, and, you know, I got to thinking that, uh, I, 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 like what... Uh, so I forget, I'm forgetting his name, Norm. Mm-hmm. Norm Finkelstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Norm. Yeah, so I mean, I am sympathetic to his, um, to the, to his fee. Life begin. Sorry, can you hear me? I just got a call. Yeah, you just cut out a little yeah. bit, but you're back. Yeah, so I'm sympathetic to his uh, feeling that the question of, I mean, the weighty question here is something that he, the left might be sidestepping because as a policy discussion, it's being watered down to, you know, you just got to, you know, it's a woman's choice. But I think, uh, I mean, like what you said to him rightly is that, you know, the policy question, I mean, policy really is a matter of societal consensus, uh, you know, and uh, it one doesn't need to have answers to the philosophical inquiry in order to proceed with policy. I mean, uh, when one finds one's, one's opinion on the fringe of society, sure, one has to organize and mobilize to kind of event. But when one, where, but like in America, from what I have understood, I mean, most of society is agreed upon abortion. And this is largely a political. Mm-hmm. So, so, sorry. So it got me 
so as so i definitely thought he conflated a philosophical matter philosophical matter with a policy one and on the philosophical front about when does life begin and things like that it feels like i mean it's a, the, the enjoyment of philosophical question is what everyone just gets to think about it on their own and arrive at their own answer and also keep changing their answer. i was thinking about the fact that but when we speak of the life in question it is not the life of an adult it is a child that will be born and mm-hmm. as society we are we are we have all agreed to supplant the judgment of children with our own anyway in mm-hmm. so many ways as in we don't think of minor consent as real consent mm-hmm. and so on and so forth so i think i mean i mean basically there's sort of a lot that one can just decide then i was also thinking if if the matter of when does life begin is up up for discussion i mean a guy i mean i mean if i'm as a dad one might decide okay i'll take a call when the child is 15 like if he's a fuck, you know fucking annoying snot <laughs> i you know i i'll revoke the life then you know i mean, i can think of many moms who'd want to wait to see if their child is annoying before they decide if this is a life or not i mean mm-hmm. i think <laughs> I think the question of when does life begin is a far richer question than making it this sort of policy thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said to to Norm. I almost am less interested in the idea of when life begins because we do have a cultural understanding of uh, ethical ways to end life at many, many, many points. Whether it's yeah. because you commit suicide, because you have a painful illness or terminal illness, or you know, there, there's whether it's the death penalty, there's a, a lot of different reasons why I obviously don't support the death penalty, but there are a lot of different reasons why culturally mm. people have decided it's okay to kill people. Yeah. Right. We're not reinventing the wheel here. And I mean, this is like very perverse, but I have played a game with friends before a kind of version of would you know, do you ever play that? Like what's worse? Like you got to choose one. And then he's like, you know, or like how, how much money would it take for you to do this, that or the other, lick a toilet seat in grand central but much, usually much grosser and more evocative than that. I won't understand the darkness of my mind. Um, and <laughs> so is it, is it like a, who do you rather accept gross? So it, pretty much. And it, we used to play it a lot in college and it got very uh, intense, but I, w- there was a version of it. I was playing once where, you know, we were trying to figure out the worst possible age to die. And mm-hmm. what we were kind of coming up with is that, I don't think it's linear. It's not like, oh, it's the saddest when a very small child dies and it's the least sad when someone very old dies. I think it's more of a bell curve. I think there's a, this sounds like, I don't know, this sounds sociopathic. I know how this sounds. But the, I think, I do think there's something to like, how much is someone looking forward to their future? How much cognition do they have? How much do they even realize what they're missing? You know, I think there is something sadder about, a 20 year old dying who wishes that she could have her first love and get, you know, imagined her wedding or imagined her first job and all these other kinds of things. Mm. than like a one year old who is there one second and not there the next and (laughs) absent being in pain, like maybe doesn't even know what's happening. And it's the same kind of rationale that people use when they justify eating animals, right? People say things like, well, they didn't know. It's not like they were like looking forward to their child's graduation or something. You know, (laughs) they walked into a room and then they were dead and, Blessedly, they didn't realize it was coming if they use those nice little Temple Grandin uh, tunnels mm. <laughs> so they don't know what's coming. So, mm. you know, as, don't come at me, vegans. It's just an analogy. I'm just saying, like, I can see an argument where, like, it's obviously very tragic to lose anyone when you love them and you want them to be alive. But mm. 
I'm not quite as scandalized by the, you know, I, I don't think there's quite the stark difference between like the day after the baby's born and the day before the baby's born and a month before yeah. the baby's born that some people describe. Not because it's not sad. Like anything wanted is sad. If you have a 60 week old pregnancy and you lose it and you really wanted it, well, that's sad because you lost something that you wanted that was potential life. Not because there's some objective yeah. real like, reality to what the blastocyst really was. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's like if you want a dessert and the shop runs out, that's also pretty sad. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely agree with you, but but also I mean, like it, while you were speaking, I I started wondering whether uh, the notion of you know the like the potential of a life or whether it's a felt pain for that life itself, um, it almost seems sort of besides the point, right? Um, because I I mean. I get what Norm was saying that we as I mean, basically society is pro-life, you know, everything is structured around, uh, everything assumes that everyone wants to live and that we want to live. And so like euthanasia, history may indeed conclude that abortion was, uh, you know, an abhorrent aberration from this. But I, I mean, it almost seems like talking about which, which side of history we're going to la- land up on seems like evading the consensus at a time. I mean, and the consensus, I mean, the moral, the moral conscience of a society at a time. I mean, like there's so much in the past that has completely changed 180 in terms of what society deemed moral and immoral. Mm-hmm. It almost seems quite irrelevant what the historical arc is, as long as there's consensus at a time. Yeah. Yeah, I also do think the eugenics conversation, I, I think it was, it's a fascinating idea, which is why I wanted to engage with it. But I think it almost is beside the point because as many people pointed out during the call-in, the real problem, I mean, there are many problems, but one of the worst problems with the eugenics was that it was imposed. It was not self-selected. It wasn't like a bunch of, you know, the whole proverbial low IQ family is like, you know what? Actually, you're right. We suck. We're a drain on society. Please do tie away tubes. It was imposed upon them as opposed to individual women making this choice for themselves. Now, you know, personally, I do feel discomfort with some of the implications of abortions that follow amniocentesis results that are abnormal, Hmm. that are atypical. Hmm. I don't say that as a judgment. I cannot say, you know, there was a time in my life where I, I, you know, I would be like, absolutely. I would, I would, I would choose to abort a child that was going to live a difficult life or a painful Hmm. life or, you know, why not? Hmm. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's not a complicated ethical situation it's also very difficult obviously to be a caregiver for your whole life and that's you know real but you know i have a very good friend who has a you know a sibling who requires lifelong care and i think about you know when you know someone who loves someone and they're such an important part of their lives you can't get around the implication being that you just don't see this full-grown human being that someone you love loves as valuable you think that they would be, you are making the decision that they would be better off dead. And that is a pretty yeah. damning judgment it's to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I'm, I'm just leaving that out there in the ether. I have, you know, that's not yeah. something that I have had to decide in my life and made never have to decide, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's easy one way or the other. So I do, I do think that there are some like issues here and I appreciate Norm challenging us to acknowledge those difficulties because yeah. I do think I, I, the I, only thing that is truly inhumane is pretending like those aren't issues. Real, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but about on the subject of eugenics being coerced, I mean, like, you know, there's a common leftist case for how abortions are also coerced because society has made child rearing sort of the individual responsibility and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, it's made it very difficult to have children. So how 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 voluntary are are voluntary abortions, I suppose, is the question. Well, I mean, I'm taking too long. I'll just wrap up. But I have one last question I thought mm-hmm. would be a nice one to leave with, which is that around the time of my sister's abortion, I got to thinking, okay, like, what is my personal thing on when does life begin? And I thought uh, maybe a fun way to do this is think of it as a negotiation between me and my mom. I mean, where when I was being birthed, you know, when would I decide my life began? And but till what time am I comfortable her deciding? And, mm. you know, I'm I'm a bit of a romantic. So I figured, okay, my first crush is certainly something I would not wish to be denied. You know, I, had a, <laughs> I had a nice time. So, but that gives her a good, I think it gave her a good 12 to 13 year window to change her mind. You know? <laughs> so yeah, when, would, you, yeah. when, when would, would I? Would, yeah, your life began. Well, people... Or would you not want to be deprived of? Well, pe- people love to say things like, oh, you, you know, what if your mother had aborted you? If my mother made that decision, I would respect her so hard for it and would want her to be happy. <laughs> you know, my mother had me young. Yeah. I was, she, I was like, tw- she was like 24, 25 when she had me, Oh, <clears throat> which seemed very normal when I was growing up. But in retrospect, mm. now that I'm pff, about to be 37, you know, I remember when my mom was 37 because I was like mm. in middle school. <laughs> mm. um, so I... I also my mother has excellent judgment and I would want her to do whatever was best for her life to make her happy, especially since I was not conscious. Like who gives a shit now? You know, once a, once a child is born, there also are other people involved. There's the father, (laughs) there's siblings, you know, there's, there's extended family. People have feelings about the baby. You're making me sound like pro infanticide now. No, but like, But, like, this is why I also appreciate Norm's example. Like, if I were 12 and I'm in that just unbelievably, um, just just difficult to truly conceptualize scenario where you know you're heading toward a concentration camp. You know, in his example, it was a newborn. But I could imagine being that same scenario with a 12-year-old and thinking it's almost worse. Because this 12-year-old is fully going to be aware of the torture and horror and hellscape and starvation and all the things it's about to experience. And it's probably going to take a lot longer to die than the baby if if we're not not being fed properly and all those other kinds of things exposed to the elements and such. So, like, if you told me that exact same story and said that a mother took, you know, killed her 12-year-old so that she didn't have to show up at the concentration camp, I'll tell you what, there wouldn't be even one cell in my entire body that would judge it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, we're on the same page about killing kids. I will leave you. <laughs> hey, you're such a trip. Look, have a good day. I'm so glad you called in. Absolutely. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, let's hunt around a little bit. Do 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 do. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces. I'm looking for new faces. Holler in the chat if you're a new face and you think that I'm like lumping you in. You guys are all familiar faces. Okay, how about Rob? I don't remember Rob. What's on your mind? 
Hey there. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing, Rob? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. What's on your mind this evening? Um, great interview as usual. Um, I have two things to bring up, I suppose, that I don't often hear talked about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and one of them is climate change and everyone's super down on it because we're pretty fucked, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, are you aware of much about pop- population growth and how that factors in? Or have you done any interviews on that? No, I mean, my understanding is that most of the Thanos arguments are a little suspect on the left. Um, the, you know, the feeling is that there is a you know, technological capacity for us to be the size that we are and not use the kinds of energy that we do if we adopted certain efficiencies and we should focus on that instead of, um, you know, severely limiting population growth. So the, the earth has a lot of capacity for food growth, et cetera, if we used our land differently and didn't eat so much cow and all that stuff. But you tell me, am I wrong about that? Should the left be seriously thinking about population as part of this equation? I, I think so. Um, there's a good series I found on EarthX TV, which I just found by Googling this issue. Uh, but anyway, it's just a documentary series with, like, a guy doing a bunch of Zoom meetings. I think it's from, like, 2020. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's it's both better and worse than what you think. So the the rate of population growth worldwide will erase pretty much anything that you... Well, let me, let me put it this way. So if you if you don't drive and you don't fly in the air, you don't, like, take planes and shit, you're a vegetarian, you, you know... You do everything you can think of to be sustainable. Uh, all that's knocked out completely if you have a child, especially if you live in America or, you know, a highly industrialized society that uses a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So in that mu- with, with that in mind, it's sort of empowering to me because, you know, no one can stop you from having no kids, right? It's a mm-hmm. pretty simple thing to explain to people. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, <laughs> the government is trying to stop us from not having no kids. <laughs> right. Well, that's 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 a thing I think I see often. And I it seems to me just um, it seems to me that's because if there's less people, there's less growth and growth having not having growth is bad if you have a lot of capital, basically. So you see people shit on Japan all the time because aging population bad. Uh, no growth, bad, except they're actually, they're doing fine, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just, I think that's a big, big, big issue. And it's, you know, it doesn't require any lifestyle changes per se, so perhaps. And there's no, um, there's no industry that we have to take down. It's basically like a PR thing. I'm, tr- I'm trying to tell everybody I know. Without sounding like a genesis. I mean, look, my, my instinct is, and I'm not going to pretend to have really looked into it, but my mm-hmm. instinct is that, one, having children is such a fundamental driver of one, life. One kid is still good, just not two. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I, I feel you. I mean, people, I, I don't feel this way, but everyone else seems to feel very strongly about the need to have children. Um, mm-hmm. has a, a real, a real biological imperative there, uh, for most people and they get a lot of joy out of it. And moreover, it does feel a little bit like, you know, emphasizing paper straws. Do you know what I'm saying? I understand that the scale 
of it in terms of emissions generated is much greater, but it does feel a little bit like individualizing the issue. It is when it's it a is. systemic issue. Now you you should those there. It's not one or the other though. Is sort of my point. Like it, it's it's more hopeful because, in at least in my mind, it's more actionable. And it's very, very effective in reducing emissions. Now, to even have a chance at ending the problem, you have to do both is the main thing. But uh, it's certainly, man, the chat really doesn't like this. I'm not, I don't, I don't mean kill people, <laughs> but population is out of control. It just is. Sorry. I mean, I, I guess I need a little bit more with that because, yeah. again, my understanding is that to the extent that we have food shortages and stuff, it has nothing to do with our capacity. I mean, I know you're talking about emissions, but it's not like it's also- a, when we were growing up, there was this idea. I remember mm-hmm. being in kindergarten and them telling me about how there were five, there were 5 billion people on the planet. <clears throat> and there was all of this hand wringing about how their population was growing and there couldn't be more. And we're going to run out of food and starve. But all of that is because of distribution issues. And it's because of droughts that are sometimes caused by climate change. And it has to do with, the World Food Program disrupting local agricultural markets and all of those kinds of things, not because the earth doesn't make enough food to feed the people that we have or because we don't have enough space for the people to live and things like that. It just feels like we're very, very, very far away from pushing up against the capacities of our planet. It's about the inefficient use by corporations. Someone drops the stat about how whatever it is, 70% of all emissions come from the top, whatever, 1% of corporations or whatever the hell it is. And so it does just feel like a misdirection. No? Um, no, Well, okay. Emissions might be caused by a small number of corporations, but people use products. Right. But it's, people are not like, it's the same. It's like, it's like saying, you know, people really should save for retirement. So let's get rid of social security. Like people, people, people make silly choices in the, for their short term gain. Because that's just the way the human brain works. And it's very difficult for us to properly weight the present need against the future needs. That's just like human nature. That's why we have social programs. But it's not that having the kid is bad. It's that I would argue we just need to regulate. We need to just nip the nip the butt at the source. I'm sitting here in COVID. Let me tell you, I feel like, I feel like I'm a pretty conscientious person. When I tell you I am singly, single-handedly responsible for like 10 garbage bags full of KN95 masks floating in the ocean somewhere. Like I, I, I get up and I put these masks on and I'd be throwing them out. And I, I cringe to think about how many masks I've generated. And that's because that's the paradigm that's been set up with set up for me. The government told me to use the mask. I'm using the mask. There doesn't seem like to be an alternative. Life is too busy to think about it that hard. But if they set up a different kind of a system, if the government were, were distributing, recyclable masks or, you know, a cloth mask that actually worked or had an insert or something that generated less waste. If someone had thought ahead and actually asked me to sign up and do something, I would do it. But I'm not going to single-handedly take hours out of my week trying to figure this out, but I would do the right thing if it was made easy for me. And that's how I kind of feel about all of these things. It's like a systemic failure and asking people to like hack their lives. It's just too much. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from. Um, maybe watch the documentary if you have time, or you know, if you're not interested, that's fine too. What's it called? Again? I do feel, um, the population factor with Professor Phil Kafaro. 
Um, I will say that they, they, they're not socialists and they don't really understand, uh, you know, the World Bank is not a good thing to get involved with if you're a developing nation. Mm-hmm. And um, to uh, a, a large issue is um, like uh, as nations develop, they're using more resources, but they still have the idea that a large family is good, which happened everywhere, but is happening now um, in more regions. And the way they talk about it sounds kind of paternalistic, like, oh, we have to teach yeah, them well, that's, to... That's the yeah. thing. It's like the people who are still having large families aren't the ones that are drains on no, well, uh, they're, pollution. They're like, you know, anybody in a city, anybody in the West, frankly, doesn't have enough money to have a large family unless you're like like the three hardcore Catholics that are left or you're living out in Utah somewhere. Like that's, that's it. Everyone else is struggling to have two kids, maybe three. Frankly, there's a pattern I've observed where only my richest friends have more than two kids. You know, someone's really rolling in it when they have three or four, <laughs> like, especially in New York, right. I look at some of my friends. I'm like, Oh, you got money, money. Cause you have four entire children. Um, so that's not the issue. And then the people who are having a lot of kids are like living sustainably in you know, in a village somewhere with maybe a little electricity and burning that little Jico oven and like sorry, the little gas powered whatever. That's what they call it in Kenya. And it's like a good time. <laughs> like they're not hurting anybody. Right. Well that's I just wanted to point out like they they don't have a particularly well developed socialist or a national perspective in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they do hit the they do talk a lot about um, women's empowerment and education and how that coincides pretty closely with lower family size because the women have more autonomy. They have mind just they, maybe they don't want to have like 14 kids and be a mother all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, they sort of don't really delve into that because I don't think they know. But anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I can't promise I'm going to watch it. I have to go through the rest of um, Fuckboy Island this weekend. <laughs> I will take it under advisement and I took the note in my um, Slack channel for taking notes during Collins and I appreciate you calling in Rob thanks a lot all right have a good one Thomas you seem kind of newish hey what's on your mind this evening yeah I've well I've, I've actually called in a few times in the past but it's been a while God damn it. So maybe, okay <laughs> sorry um well, I think one of the things that was interesting about the uh, the Vijay Prashad interview is to sort of, I think, you can really tell his, like, roots in, like, the 60s New Left. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> just interesting because there was, like, a whole mix of it from, like, sort of third worldism uh, to, like, this appeal to, like, uh, a more revolutionary group that is like some sort of minority group in the, in the West or also this idea of actionism of just like, you have to do something, go do something, go, go run for local elections, go, I don't know, organize people, et cetera, just go do stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because this is a sort of a, a symptom of the left where we keep repeating over and over are failures, right? So like specifically the 60s and 30s left, we keep reenacting them, albeit like worse every time and wondering like, wait, well, why didn't it work? What's the alternative? Well, 
so that's that's a great question. Like I think the first thing that we have to do is reckon with and digest like digest our failures, understand what they mean, to then pose the and then we can start to think about the question of, okay, how do we move forward, having now understood the history of the left and its failures, and. I mean, that's a good question, right? Like one of the things a lot of people on the left would say is we need the party. We need to build the party. And like, but how do you do that? Like that's, and I don't mean just like the sort of logistics of it, but like, what does it mean to build the party? It's a difficult thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I think we need, you know, to sort of uh, attempt to channel Theodore Adorno here uh, it's a step back to think through the history of the left and its failures and what the left as a living thing meant um, and see how it, and then, then we can sort of move forward, maybe. So what does that mean? I mean, I'm just, I'm just really trying to be specific. I don't, I'm not pick. I'm not trying to pick on you, but I, everyone on the left is very good at problematizing everything. And if I can identify a failure, it, it would be that that is somehow the be all and end all of these conversations. Well, the real problem is this. Okay. <laughs> so then what? So then what, is, what does that look like? What, what specifically do you think that we need to be learning from the mistakes and how will that inform the way that we behave going forward? Yeah. So I think like one of the, you know, I'm, there's a, an organization uh, called the Platypus Affiliated Society mm-hmm. um, that I'm probably going to be joining. I'm in their reading group. It's not it's not like a party or anything like that. Um, it's sort of just an organization for trying to understand this history of the left and maybe hopefully eventually that leading to the reconstitution of the left. Um but I think, you know, critically engaging with the history of the left, which I think the left refuses to do, and critically engaging with its with its failures. Okay, but right? I, 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 I hear you saying, good. but what does that what does that mean? What can you give so, me an example so left, of one of the left's failures that, if critically engaged with, would change the behavior of the left for the better going forward? Absolutely. So, for instance, the New Deal mm-hmm. is a huge failure. It's the death of the thirties left of the old left as they were referred to. Right. That is the end of the possibility or the end of the socialist movement in America. And yet now the left looks back at that and treats it as a victory. Right. They say, Oh, we got the new deal. We did it. Right. Like we should try and do that again. And when actually that was the death of the socialist women is not what the socialists wanted. There was the failure, right? So in a sense, we're sort of reenacting our failures, desiring to return to them. So you're saying that, I mean, was the issue, was the failure the New Deal or the fact that the New Deal was used as an excuse to kind of demobilize the movements? Uh, I mean, it's, it's both, right? I mean, the left or the socialists were not in favor of the government welfare of the welfare state, right? 
their whole idea was not to petition to the Democrats to give them, you know, more welfare, right? Like the left is against this, very much so, right? And what so, were they, what were they looking for in, instead? I mean, they were looking to build. I mean, they had there was they did have the party, right? Like Debs had the Socialist Party. He declared himself a Bolshevik, aligned with the rest of the, you know, second international radicals. This was a time when the party did exist. Um, And they were actually trying to overcome capitalism. Like not get welfare programs or whatever, but like build up in civil society and in politics to the point where there would be a revolution. Not necessarily saying it would be violent uh, by revolution, but a revolution nonetheless. Mm -hmm. The goal was not like to get welfare programs, which Marx explicitly was like against. The Second International was explicitly against. And also, also, they would be independent, right? The Independent Socialist Party, Mm -hmm. not part of the Democrats. So I think that's that's a failure that we've continued to reenact, right? I mean, that's yeah, no, that's that's DSA, mm-hmm. right? Like we're just trying to do that over and over again. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think there are a lot of people who say we should not run within the Democratic Party. We should not be interested in what the Democratic Party does, and you know, the the goal is more revolutionary than the Bernie campaigns was. I don't, you know, and I think that's a perfectly valid goal. A lot of people over at like RBN speak in those terms and increasingly I think that's where a lot of people are and I tend to agree. I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess my, my quibble is that there is a way that sometimes we talk on the left that, I mean, it, that to me seems like a very simple, direct statement that I a hundred percent agree with. And I think we should just say that. The left should consider whether or not it wants to fight for social programs or if it just it wants to clarify its goal as being more revolutionary. Now, I also do think that part of getting buy-in is having those kinds of goals and explaining to people through fighting for various social programs why it is that they should invest in the left's idea of the future. The old but, left, what they would do is they would – all of those things that you would seek the government that like today people would say – oh, we need the government to provide this as a way to sort of build trust within this community that we're going to achieve some stuff and that way there's more potential for social, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the left would provide it itself outside yeah, I, of the government. That, that's that's fine. I just, I guess I'm just, my only quibble is, you know, I think we can just say that. Sometimes I got to say, this is just my own little pet peeve, is that sometimes we're like, I had this whole thing back and forth with, with Gerald Horn about this because he kept saying, Left needs to understand internationalism. And I was like, great, you're the guest. Tell us what we need to know about internationalism so we can all understand it and then do whatever the fuck you want us to do. (laughs) But he just wouldn't explain it. He just kept saying, we need to understand this. You need to read that. Why don't you do And that starts to feel like intellectual bullying and not like you actually want anybody to understand you. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you're doing that, but that is my like weird pet peeve because after doing a million one of these interviews, I am very sensitive to this kind of discourse that is circular and I it's people aren't doing it intentionally people are doing it in very good faith but you know folks get asked very tough questions and they're used to giving answers like well we need to organize and 
we just need to take lessons from what happens overseas and we need to, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, well, you're here to be specific where you're not talking to people who just learned how to spell socialism yesterday. Can you like be specific, like be specific. And so like, I think that that's a great point. I just sometimes wish that we could dispense with the, you know, if you had read this and just tell me what the fuck it is that I'm supposed to have learned from the, <laughs> from the book. Cause I'm probably not going to read yeah. this documentary, listen to this documentary on population growth. And I'm probably not going to read whatever <laughs> book at this point. <laughs> I, mean, I think you are on to something here that I think is important, right? Where you have a lot of the left, like, let's say, you know, before we're sort of talking about the sort of DSA-ish left. Now, if we're talking about the more like, I don't know, say Trotskyist or Stalinist or whatever, right? Maoist left. They would just tell you things like, oh, yeah, well, we just need to do A and B and C, right? Like whatever term it is, whatever, like. Marxist terminology they want to use, right? We need to do internationalism. We need to do this. And it's the same thing that those groups have been saying for, I don't know, nearly 80 years at this point without making any progress, mm-hmm. right? Like the Trotskyist classic thing will be like, we need to do the, the uh, what is it, the, the uh, transitional demands or whatever. I forget the, the name, but it's a pamphlet that Trotsky wrote where he was like, okay, we need to demand these things because demanding these things are things that can't be fulfilled under capitalism. And so like it, they, you know, they point towards socialism. Like eventually the workers will realize, Oh, we need to overthrow capitalism to gain these things. But what the Trotskyists will do in 2022 is put out that exact same program and say, yeah, that's what we need to do. As if we haven't like, in a way moved backwards since Trotsky put that out, mm. right? Mm. If we ha- as if we haven't regressed, as if the question of like, as if we're not like at a way further back point and the question of how do we get this back going again isn't like deeper, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, look, thank you. I appreciate you calling in, um, Thomas. And I, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, one question that we should take up perhaps uh, in the time we have remaining, in addition to whatever you guys want to say about the episode, is the new forward party news. I saw the left reacting pretty negatively to it online for kind of uh, obvious reasons. But uh, let me know what you think if you happen to have a take on that. Uh, I'm coming to you Allende. Oh, and thank you, Rob, for calling in. What's on your mind this evening, Allende? Hi. Um, I, was, I wasn't even expecting you to call me next, but um, um, so when it comes to, I, I feel like my biggest takeaway from the conversation you had today, or what was released today, was mm-hmm. like, like the idea that in many ways the left is missing the forest for the trees. I mean, many political movements do this, but like for instance, like even when it comes to like. Um, for instance, the news with um, Andrew Yang and the Forward Party, right? Like, I'm a big fan of that, right? And I feel like a lot of people on the left are, like, like trying to interrogate, like, whether or not it's going to be a corporate party or yada, yada, yada. Like, mm-hmm. is it going to is it gonna um, actually stand for leftist values or whatever? And, like, I feel like in many ways that misses the point. Like, the point isn't, like, you need... 
you need there you need it to be possible for there to be like a third party with power before you can get a leftist part third party with power mm-hmm. you know what i mean and any attempt to do said thing is going to be like like your if your goal is to have a is to have a third option a, a better option correction a better option than the current democratic and republican party what is the like like you you'd want to encourage any attempt any attempt to to make an infrastructure that allows for a third party um but i'm inclined to agree and i know people are gonna be mad we did a segment on rising today i haven't looked at the comment section because i was trying to be happy but i I, you know robbie and i kind of agreed on this one when i interview andrew next and i have said this to him directly i i personally would not be involved with a party like this or put any kind of confidence and faith in candidates from a party like this as long as it did not make the basic pledge of having uh no corporate money for instance you know like i can understand the kind of bipartisan effort and trust it if at very least it was people making decisions based on what they thought was best for the country, which is fundamentally not what happens when you have these corporate donations. That's like the whole point. However, to the extent that this thing is now the, like the biggest third party effort in American history or whatever, and has the interest and the funds to pursue ballot access across the country and to pursue uh, ranked choice voting and all of these things that are going to inert to the benefit of the Greens and any other left party that comes down the pike, I am supportive of it. Just like the Libertarian Party wanting to give Matthew Ho a hand in North Carolina, God bless him. You know, there are Libertarians who have infiltrated the Republican Party. The whole, like, spiel the last few years leading up to Trump was all of the, the um, what's his face? The little squirrely one who likes to work out in the gym all the time. Um, you know the one. Oh, fuck. I don't. <laughs> um, um. Oh God, what's his name? You know what? The, okay, let me look at the chat. You guys know what I'm talking about. The he was good. He was gonna. Everyone thought he was like the next coming. He was gonna be the the, the superstar. He's at that famous picture of him skinny and white. Come on, guys. I'm just having a brain freeze. I'm gonna attribute this to um, COVID brain. It's not important. The point is, like, they're all, it was the libertarian influence that was really taking over the party and saying we're going to cut all these taxes and we're not going to have any social programs for anything. And, you know, Trump kind of blasted through that and confused the waters a little bit. And there were a lot of Republicans who didn't actually like that very much, who, you know, thought, you know, didn't just want to minimize government, but wanted to make it big and do evil things, I guess. Uh, But the point of the matter is, they have a different attitude toward how much you can work within and infiltrate and take things over. And even though I don't have a ton of confidence in the forward party as is, I would like a world where people looked at the how it's being constituted right now and it's disproportionately conservative and to say, well, let's get in there and see if we can make all this money work for us. <laughs> like, what else are you doing? Like, you want to you participate in the Democratic Party, but you're too good for the forward party? Come on now. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, and I, I, I guess I really wanted to ask you, right? So, actually, the other day when you were, um, I forget where you, the name of the professor you're speaking to. Your last call, your last call-in show before this one, Paul right? Ryan. Paul Ryan. I'm sorry, Paul Ryan. 
is the name of the guy I couldn't think of his name. Sorry, go ahead. I was thinking Tim Ryan. I was like, no, it's not Tim Ryan. Paul Ryan. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So the um in that conversation, and you mentioned that like you know you had your, I think it was like your bachelor's in like the history of science. I'm like, oh my god, this girl is STEM. Like this is why I like <laughs> this is why I like listen to her STEM supremacy. <laughs> and like I like reason. I don't know, that's kind of related to my point now, which is, like, recently, like, I've been kind of, like, thinking about what I want to do with my life, and I've been, like, I realized, like, I'm really in love with, like, politics and policy. Like, I, like, I sink my teeth into, like, this, um, this episode of Breaking Points, um, with Kristen and Sagar, which was, like, all about, like, like, the different things that were getting passed, like, the, the Chips Act, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I'm all into details. Like, I want hours and hours of just policy, right? <laughs> and, like, to a certain extent, like, I, I have been struggling to find, like, people or a space or, like, something constructive, right? Like, I'm, I'm even thinking of, like, making this my career in some way, and I'm just, like, not sure how to go about it. And, you know, I was just wondering if you have any insights into that. I don't know, my friend. I did not pursue a career in politics. So I don't really know what to tell you. Well, not necessarily uh, my, politics, but like you know, policy. You, you make you know, you know how you have like a lot of you. You have these conversations, right? And like, I love the way that you um, discuss with people, and um, like you know how how you go about your show. And I was just wondering, like, how did how did that get started? Number one, and like number two, um, like do you have like a method of like how you like come into contact with people who have interesting thoughts? Um, well, no, this was all for your organic for me because I didn't believe that you get to have a job that you actually like. I, I didn't want to be, I'm going to be really honest with you. I didn't want to be poor. So I went to law school. That's it. That was the whole calculation. (laughs) Uh, and I, I have a really tough time telling people to go and do X, Y, and Z when that's not the choice that I made. And I don't know that I would have ended up here if I had, I don't know, gone and gotten like a master's in public policy or something from somewhere. I I can guarantee you actually that I wouldn't have ended up here. Um, I, uh, my observation is that in the policy department on the Bernie campaign, for instance, it was, you know, people didn't necessarily have like degrees in anything in particular. Um, The head of the policy team was a lawyer for what it's worth, who never practiced. Um, I, they, they, were, they were all pretty young, and they seemed to have come to it by, I don't know, like working on the Hill and then just getting put on the policy side of things. My impression was that not all of them, but some of them seemed to come from some personal wealth, which enabled them to take these kinds of jobs on the Hill that notoriously pay you very poorly. And so I just think that everyone has to be kind of clear-eyed about it because you also got to just live your life and and survive. You know what I mean? And I'm not trying to pretend that traditional paths to policy work are easy. I think it's like journalism where a bunch of rich kids often get into it because who else can afford to take these kinds of salaries? I Again, I also did not pursue journalism for the express reason that I didn't want to be poor. <laughs> like I didn't, you know, I looked around. I was like, I'm not stupid. I'm not trying to. You know, I'm not trying to graduate with all this debt and then have some paper try to pay me $35,000 a year to live in New York City. That wasn't what I saw for myself. So I went to law school and I was miserable, but I was making, like, 
I don't know. So it depends on your situation. This is what I tell everybody all the time. If you have rich parents, I have one set of advice for you. And if you don't, I have a different set of advice for you. And and I also just ask you about your tolerance for roommates <laughs> and and student loan debt, you know, and you know, not buying things. <laughs> What's your tolerance for not buying things? Um I'm gonna be honest, slow. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. You're like, I'm STEM. I'm STEM. Okay, well, people go into STEM because they also don't want to be poor. <laughs> like, That's, it's a big reason. It's a big reason why I'm a CS major. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. So, like, I know you already. You're not trying to be no policy. So, here's what I would say to you go ahead and do your STEM job, write a blog on the side. <laughs> you know, like you, you people, you, can, you don't need you don't need all of like the hoops anymore. Blessedly, it's all chance and who knows. You know, it's all chance. Like I, I sometimes feel like I don't know how I can give someone advice when I was just sitting in my office minding my own business, miserable, and I happened to know someone in law school who knew Nathan Robinson, and I was cold pitching all these places, and every, no one was writing me back. And I said, well, would Nathan publish this? And Vanessa was like, yes, I think so. And then I wrote an article, and it was a hit. And I wrote a second article, it was a hit. And then we were off to the races, and suddenly people were answering my emails. I don't know. It feels to me to this day like a weird magic fluke of fate that I managed to have a career out of that. But it happened, and who knows how long this train's going to (laughs) go. But, you know, I do think that there are opportunities because of, you know, the democratization of the media or whatever we want to call Twitter and YouTube and stuff to do things. But also if you're doing it because you really love it, like I was getting my 10,000 hours at the firm because I just spent my whole day on Twitter, if I'm going to be really honest. And I do think that there's something to, if you really do love it, you'll do it regardless. And something may or may not manifest out of it just because you're spending so much time on it. But it doesn't necessarily need to immediately jump to a vocation. Mm-hmm. Just take okay. care of yourself. That's all I'm saying. Like life is hard and real. Just don't. Just be clear-eyed about what you're doing. <laughs> take care of yourself. I don't want to be responsible for any mess. Is all I'm saying. I don't want your nice parents who worked so hard to make sure that you were a, a, a CS major to come knocking on my door talking about Brianna Joy Gray threw my child off tracks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, so. I- I get the sense that we're about to be done with my time, but I want last thing I want your thoughts on, which is like the um, so you know how we often on left often talk about like workers and essentialize the worker as like the main per- like as basically the average person, right? And so we're maximizing mm-hmm. the um the amount of bargaining power that workers have, but I often I feel like that comes. Like that comes in conflict with things like the police union, right? And just like how, like our our stance on that union versus like our stance on unions in general, and how do how do those two things like go together? Well, I mean, police unions are a whole other thing. I mean, look, the the issue was the issue is what police are tasked to do. Right. It's it's not like, oh, unions are all good, but not police unions. I mean, it does kind of feel to me like, I mean, of course, to the extent that there needs to be something called the police, 
that does something that looks very different from what the police currently do, they should have a union like everybody else. It does feel a little bit like saying, you know, you know, Nazis are bad, therefore double-breasted suits are terrible. No, like <laughs> you can you can have whatever feeling you want about the cars they drove or the clothes they wore or whatever. You probably shouldn't talk about it too much in public. But like just because someone also, you know, someone bad did a, a thing or has a, has a thing or has a quality doesn't necessarily make that other quality bad. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, it does feel to me, the police, police unions aside, the, the broader issue of union leadership capture, I think is a very serious one that is very sensitive to talk about because there is so much stigma around unions and there are these people who've been working so hard to disempower them. And you don't want to say things that add fuel to the fire. At the same time, if you're at a tipping point where unions are diminishing efficacy, then maybe you don't feel like you have that much to lose. And I have felt like this was very sensitive for me in my position, because we all know that I don't know shit about anything with respect to unions. I've never, well, I guess I have been in one on the Bernie campaign, but you know, generally speaking outside of that, I've never been in one and you know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm an, I'm an elite. Like, so who am I going to sit here and say and, and shit on unions and the work that people like uh, Jane McAlevey have done and all of that. Like, I'm not trying to pretend like I know more than anybody else, but my observation is, <laughs> there's a disconnect here and I hear it between the lines when I talk to people like Jane and when I talk to people like Sarah Nelson, like I hear it. And, and when I, you know, struggle to get an NNU representative on the podcast in the wake of force the vote. And when I spoke to um, the former NNU chair, I think, or whatever he was uh, on the Bernie campaign who I had on, you know, around the time of force the vote to explain in any, what was going on with NNU and what the long term strategy for Medicare for all was post Bernie, like all of them let out in drabs and trickles, this gap between leadership and rank and file. And the fact that leadership had these relationships with squad members and stuff that they were following instead of following the constituents that, you know, obviously outside of the lefty sphere, there's all kinds of, priorities from leadership that have very little to do with rank and file, much less the broader public. And that's why I really love VJ's point about how you've got to think about the worker outside of work. If you're really looking out for the interest of your rank and file, it's not just about making sure they get like OSHA protection or a, a health insurance benefits. They also leave the office and they have to get on the public transportation and they have to find housing and they have to breathe the air and they have to do all these other kinds of things. And so it would be nice if union leadership and union members broadened their understanding of what they should be fighting for. Now, that's obviously very self-serving for me. I don't live in a union, and I'm desperate for someone who has, you know, power over production <laughs> to leverage it for my benefit. So, like, again, that's why it's really not my place to say any of this. But I'm just being honest to you about what my observations are after – almost two years of doing this and asking like just genuinely open-endedly asking people these questions. And this is what they're offering up. You've, you've heard it, right? Like you guys have been here. <laughs> you've heard me ask these questions and everybody now for almost two years, we do this little do si -do. What do we yeah. do? We organize. How do we organize? <laughs> we don't have enough organizations. Okay. <laughs> like, and even the best people, like, 
I, look, I, I'm going to try to get Sarah Nelson back on the show. But like when she was on the last time, I was earlier in the program. I wasn't as pointed with the questions, you know, but now I've worked myself into this frenzy. So, you know, you know, girl gone wild here. But, you know, I, I, I do want to know. You, you guys are fighting. I mean, like you guys could bring down every plane in America. Or, I don't mean that in a, I mean, just yeah. ground every plane in America. You know, I, and I understand these are human beings with lives and salaries and they need to take care of them. So I understand that. But I promise you, if, 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 if a union like the flight attendants union or the nurses, given all that they've gone through these last two years, we're, we're going to do something like that. We're going to strike for themselves principally, but also for the greater benefit. The, the, the speed which, which, with which money would be Venmo <laughs> to their strike fund would be incredible. Because it really would be for all of us. They, I mean, like, I'd be, I would be like, the, the whole Patreon would just be going to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I feel like, I feel like sooner, sooner, sooner than that would be a law saying that those people can't strike. Well, it's going to be a uh, wildcat. Yeah. It's going to be a legal strike. If none of this is going to be legal, nothing that works is ever going to be legal. That's nothing true. that works is ever going to be sanctioned, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Okay. I feel like I've, I've like brought you down. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just saying look out for yourself. That's all. Because life is hard. How, how old are you, Ayende? I am 21. Oh, sweetie pie. Yeah, just look <laughs> out for yourself. That's all. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care of yourself. Keep the faith. All right. All right, cousin Eric, what's on your mind? <sighs> cousin Eric, That's how come you start every time with this like, huge, exasperated sigh, like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? Yeah, because sometimes I feel like it is. Um, how are things down I- in Florida? Uh. Typical Florida shit. Um, <laughs> insanity all around, and I have to pretend like it's normal. Um, yeah. So I almost had a few choice in words for norm, for norm, but because the whole the whole Roe v. Wade thing, mm-hmm. like with when it comes to women's bodies, I'm like, as a dude, that's not my place. Like, because I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, dude, that bothers me that you're so comfortable commenting on the shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in <sighs> I understand that was a, that was for, that was primarily you wanted to have the the input of the women, and I respect that. So, yeah, it is what well, it is. Well, I mean, you can say your say your say your piece now. There's very few women in this chat. I've been trying to find one, but yeah, maybe two yeah. Jasmine. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I just I just wanted to make it clear that there are plenty of men that are like, this isn't our place. Like, why the fuck is this a topic? Well, and, I don't know. I, and, I don't know that I fully why, subscribe I'm, to that. Like, having a sense of perspective is one thing, but obviously everyone has opinions on things, and I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that you have to turn your brain off just because you're a man. No, no, I'm not saying turn your brain off. I'm just saying there's a place. Like, there's, like, there, there's that line that you don't cross. 
and, and that's what I've been ta- looking at. Like, I've been wondering when some dudes comment on this shit. I'm like, who the fuck raised you, bro? Like, what? What? Mm. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't really think there's really any like left infighting going on per se, as much as it is accountability in that the left is trying to basically reconstitute itself in a way. Mm-hmm. Between, you know, Cold War bullshit, the Palmer raids, all that good shit, little terrible shit. And, and yeah, it's not... I know Jordan Sheridan talks about this lefty infighting shit, but that's, that's not really happening, though. Having standards is not the same as infighting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I do think that there's, I think that it, it is, I mean, obviously there's a division on the left, there is infighting, there are very clear camps that don't seem to be, uh, doesn't look like they're going to be resolved anytime soon. I will say that um, I agreed to go and talk to Chank on Young Turks. We have to schedule a time for it. I invited Why? him to come on, well, after he called me a fake leftist, I reached out to him in the DMs. And said that I really hoped that we could, you know, talk, and I didn't want to feud, and invited Jank him on my show. Bree Jank is the last person to call anybody fake. That's fine, but I invited him on my show because I would prefer to just have a conversation about whatever his concerns are than to have some silly beef that I have no interest in. I mean, and he expressed to- some concerns about coming on bad faith and whether or not I would. Uh, ethically handle the interview or selectively edit it or things like that. I'm not sure why he would think that I would do something like that since I've never been accused of doing anything like that and never have done anything like that. But I respect his concerns and agree to go on Young Turks. So, I mean, obviously things are happening and people fight with each other. There was a whole dust up with David Sirota I saw a couple of days ago that I tried to ignore you know, people, there's obviously infighting, but the question is, you know, is it you know, is it substantive or not? And while I do think some of it is silly, you know, some of it is, you know, these weird little accounts being mad at me for my Tucker Carlson radar or whatever like that, you know, just people just trying to get clicks off of each other. A lot of it is very substantive. I think the force of vote divide is substantive. It's a strategic substantive disagreement that is also amplified by interpersonal issues that people have with each other. But I don't think it's one of those things where you can just say make up and be friends because there's a core disagreement there. And I think that's frankly, it's like a growing pain. I don't know that I think that is, I think the world is better post force the vote. I'm sorry. I think that the left is sharper and more focused post force the vote, even if half of it is still kind of where it was before force the vote. Okay. That's something we could definitely agree on. And, and yeah, it's just, yeah, I saw when Jay called you a fake leftist. I don't know, because see, if it's me, I just I just leave him on ignore. But and it's fine. Like, I agree with this person in the comments who's like, Young Turks does good work. And I, I want, to the extent that they have a huge audience and people are learning about leftism from them, I, I'm, I'm happy for them to be doing that. And I'm glad that they're there. Same with, you know, Sam Cedar or anybody else who I might substantively disagree with on various other issues. You know, do I wish that people could put their personal issues aside? Yes, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time. You know, like, I don't think the left is failing because 
you know, someone doesn't like me. <laughs> I think the left is failing if we don't agree on certain kind of strategic avenues that can yield real results. Yeah, like actually understanding generally what the real problems are and actually mm-hmm. being on the same page with that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and it's it's just the fact that even as like even teaching mm-hmm. it it's weird because you know deep down in your head that there's a substantive difference between schooling and education. Mm. And you try to get that through the heads of some, uh, some of my lovely students. And that tends to be more of a journey than you really want it to be. And mind you, I'm not talking about some middle schoolers. I'm talking about actual high schoolers, almost grown up students. So, and on top of all this shit going on, it's just, it's, it can get annoying at times. Mm. Not that you don't care, it's just annoying, like. Right. Well, there's few jobs in the world as important as what you're doing. So, you know, I know that's some, you know, maybe paltry comfort to hear from me, but, you know, I hope you do feel that sense of import and accomplishment, even though I know it's very, very tough. My parents were both teachers growing up and, you know, I, I appreciate that it is often thankless, but I hope rewarding in some small ways. And I hope that we're able to fight to get you what you need um, sooner rather than later, because I know you guys are under a lot of stress. So we did a segment today on, um, you know, school ventilations and how, you know, little money relatively has been given to try to, install the kind of um, air filtration systems that have lowered the spread of COVID by 41%. And, you know, it just seems so silly that we're still two years into it and we're not at least there yet. So, uh, you know, keep the faith and I'm, you know, rooting for you down there, cousin Eric. And I don't see how you do that show with, who is it? Robbie, that, uh, the libertarian person or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I'm getting the hang of it, and I'm I'm enjoying it more and more these days. But I appreciate you calling he in. You would have already been cussed out by me. Like there have been some things you would have gotten cussed out by me over. Well, that's why I'm sure I couldn't do your <laughs> job, and we're 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 right where we need to be, cousin Eric. But thank yeah. you as always for calling in. No problem. All right, keep the faith. Yeah, Jasmine, you're up. How are you doing? Can you unmute yourself? T. Jasmine? I was so excited that maybe I had a woman. T. Jasmine, can you unmute yourself? There you I, go. I think you just did. There you go. Are you hearing me? I am hearing you. Okay. What's on your mind this evening? Oh, I, I didn't expect <laughs> I didn't expect to be called on. I don't know why I didn't expect to be called on. Um... So there was something that you guys said. Well, I want to I want to say I appreciate Norm mm-hmm. for bringing some levity to certain conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would consider myself leftist, rightist, or whatever. I'm not. I'm neither. I'm just. Mm-hmm. 
there are some things that I am for, and that's freedom. That's just mm-hmm. freedom. Mm-hmm. So uh, bodily autonomy, um, freedom to, and also social, social economic help. You pay your taxes, you should benefit from your taxes, like Medicare for all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciate him bringing levity because there's an imbalance, I think, when I see people just automatically saying, and especially people who consider themselves leftists who are so gung-ho for the mandates. Earlier this week, I went to a hospital. I couldn't even get in um, a room because they demanded I showed a vaccine card. Mm. Um, people are, you know, they're just... Um, demanding that you do the vaccine mandates and they're leftists and they they care not about bodily autonomy, but at the same time, they're the same ones who are saying that women should have bodily autonomy. You know, we should, women should be allowed to do it. And I agree, women should be allowed to, this shouldn't even be a political thing. It shouldn't even be a situation where it's in the courts. Mm. You're, it's a medical situation. You go to the doctor for whatever medical situation and you deal with it. But there's also this factor that it's moral and there's a moral factor because let's be honest, and some of us are not honest, it's a, it's a life. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if we're being honest, it's, it's a life and there's something, I mean, I know that not everybody is spiritual, but there's a heavy weight that comes with it. And so it shouldn't be so flippant that everybody is saying you shouldn't even have to give a reason if you want an abortion. And that's well, do you think, just... Do you think, Jasmine, you know, does that conflict with bodily autonomy? You know, if people have to give a reason, who decides what reasons are the good ones is, I think, the issue. Like, this is what I think Morm's getting at about the about wanting there to be stigma. I know that's a very controversial point, and I understand fully why. But I think his point is that I fully he fully wants there to be a full right to choose, basically up until and maybe even a little bit after birth. But um, he wrong. wants well, but he wants there to be uh, more. He would rather there be moral weight and stigma than there be actually any prohibition. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he yeah. agrees with you that it should be a moral weight, but that that moral weight almost takes the place of some third party arbiter who decides, you know, that you, that you have to, like, kneel before and say, ah, is my reason for wanting an abortion good enough? Well, it's, it's the idea that you have already done that work inside of yourself because there is stigma, I guess, I think is the thinking. Yeah, and, and you don't want there to be stigma, right? But I, I agree, there should be some amount of stigma because it is, it is something weighty. I mean, there's a life. It's a life. Yeah, I think stigma is maybe like not the right word choice that he should have used. Um, but I, I get what he was getting at. Like, you you want to make you want there to be some way to guarantee that people are. It's too maybe you don't want there to be. People are too flippant when it comes to people use it as sex. I had a friend. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who had four. And let me tell you something. It's I, I know a lot of people who call themselves leftists are not spiritual. I had a friend who had four abortions. And then she, I don't know, I thought, I think, I, I'm being honest, I think it's its something spiritual. She ended up losing her left leg, one of her legs. 
um, and something, it was so simple. Her foot got slammed in a car and next thing you know, she had cancer, bone cancer. And I, and I'm telling you, it's something, it's because I feel like there's some kind of retribution spiritually. Oh, come now, Jasmine, we no, can't. I'm telling you, it's spiritual. Life is spiritual. Sowing and reaping is spiritual. It's, it's, it's spiritual. Life is very spiritual. I think we should be careful the things that we do. There's some weight to what we're doing. I know we want to be flippant about everything, but we should just carefully consider the things that we're doing and cleanse ourselves after we do well, certain well, Jasmine, things. Is there something in between? Like, cause, so I, I, I do feel like I kind of reject the bad things happen for a reason kind of karmic explanation because I do, I don't know if you've had anything very bad happen to you in your life or oh, something bad sure. happened to a very good person, but it does frustrate me that kind of thinking because it does implicitly put a lot of blame on people, many of whom are blameless and like life is tragic and sometimes terrible things just happen. But I, I do get your broader point. Like I, I don't, I don't think there should be stigma in part because there just is stigma. There already is so much stigma. So it just feels weird to root for more of it. But it, to, and I, and I, given that there is already stigma to the extent that people do sometimes have many, many abortions in a world where there is stigma, I don't think that having more stigma is going to change the behavior at the end of the day, obviously. Right. So I think that there are good medical reasons for pe- to, to not want people to rely on abortions for birth control. Cause even though there's relatively small risks with these procedures, there are risks associated with them and you want to limit those kinds of risks. And obviously birth control has much lower risk profile and is also less expensive and all these other kinds of things. But I don't know that, I'm fully buying into the idea that as a matter of principle, as a matter of principle, um, having multiple abortions is somehow, you know, ab- you know, like a more morally suspect. Do you know what I mean? I'm having some difficulty with making that judgment. All right. All right. Okay, fine. Let's go to the other argument that there's this question of, if you're going to a concentration camp, I know Normie is Jewish, um, and he's like, um, if a lady's pregnant and she's going to the concentration, and she knows that she's on a train to the concentration camp, mm-hmm. she just goes ahead and kills the, have the abortion, or, or if she has an already born child, kills the child, so that the person... Listen, to me, I don't agree with that either, because to me, once there's life, there's hope. And if you're, and there's so many stories of babies who got out or, or, or babies who were speared um, and were sent on trains to England or somewhere else or taken care of or hidden or someone took care of a baby. I just feel like if you just, just, I wouldn't want that on me. I would just pray, obviously, because like I said, life is spiritual. So of course I'd pray, but I would want, wouldn't want that on me because to me, there's a possibility of hope for that child. If that child is alive, there's hope. I, this, this is the same thing I don't believe in euthanasia because to me, I, I saw a story of a baby who was um, in pain and the baby was in pain with the skin always scratching and he was all over him and he was in pain for months and months and months and months and months. And, months. and some people would consider having that, ch- saying that child is going through agony, the doctors aren't doing anything, and the woman had to do some kind of litigation to get them to change and look at certain things for her baby. But eventually, she showed a, a, a video of the baby being 
you know, he, he got to like nine years old. He's happy. He's playing like any other kid. And in his, when he was like six months, four months, people would consider he's suffering too much killing and, you know, and, and then people, somebody else would say, who can blame her? He's, go, he's in agony. But to me and to her, obviously, once there's life, there's hope. There's always a hope on a possibility of change for the better. So that's why I believe that I wouldn't go to do something as drastic as killing the child um, because there's, there could be something that would shift. And I would yeah, want I, to make that decision. I, I appreciate I appreciate that. And I think that many people would make many different choices in those scenarios. Um, but I think that when you say when there's life, there's hope. Yeah. It resonates with me, but I think that's exactly why I can empathize with how hopeless a parent would feel in that situation. And to be really honest, from a historical perspective, when you're looking at the fate that befell the overwhelming majority of people going to those camps who were healthy and able and in the best of conditions, much, much less a newborn baby, you know, it, it's, it's the beloved thing also, you know, yeah, we are, yeah. but it's, it's the, do you also, it's also the pain and I'm, and this is more, a more selfishly rooted thing as opposed to looking out for the pain of the baby. But you know, there are people who, you know, you give birth to a baby. It's this thing that you're attached to and you love very much. And, you're looking at the prospect of it being taken away from you also. And, you know, that hopelessness, I don't know. I, I... Right, but it's like, it's like that Solomon story. You know, there was two mm-hmm. babies, two, two um, I don't know if you've heard, you heard that story. There were um, a parent, two parents, um, they slept in the same room. Parents with newborn babies, they slept in the same room. And one parent, she slept on her baby and the child died. And the other one, there's, you know, she didn't, the baby's still alive. So the one whose child died said, you know what? I want a baby. I I lost my baby and I want a baby. And she, it's not fair for her to have a baby. So she started claiming that the baby's hers. And, you know, they're both newborns. So Solomon had to decide what to do, the king. Mm -hmm. He, he, they're before him and he says, this is a vexing situation. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut the baby in half and take mm-hmm. leave both of you. And you know who, what the mother said? You know what? You can have Let the baby. her have the baby. Mm-hmm. And then Solomon said, okay, you're the mother and give the baby back to the mother. Because the other one was say, fine. Because mm-hmm. she's, you know, she's happy to not have the other woman have a baby just because, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. loves company. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. It's the same idea. If, even if you don't have the baby and somebody else has the baby, but you know that the baby's alive, even if you know that your end is near, you're going to be fine with, at least you have that peace to know no, that No, I, I hear you. And I, I think this is a little bit not super useful because this is all hypothetical. I mean, it's not hypothetical really happened, but it's, it's the facts of the particular situation are outside of our purview. But again, this isn't a situation where someone in Nazi invaded... Germany, Poland, wherever, you know, was figuring out what to do with their newborn and if they could ferret it away. No, this is literally someone on a train to a camp, which... I'm I'm just saying, once there's life, there's hope. Anything can happen. Anything can change. There's always possibilities. Somebody could be on that train and and just whisk the baby away, you know? Somebody could 
just with they want a baby for him and his family and just pretend that something you know there, there's so many possibilities life is there's endless possibilities in life and to me just would you sentence hope. would you sentence norm finkelstein's mother's train companion to jail no assuming that she survived you know no i wouldn't yeah yeah I wouldn't. I wouldn't sentence her to jail. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sentence her to jail. I and mean, I think that—that's the question, right? That's this, the whole thing about abortion. It's not really about our moral judgments, because I think we can all sit here and, and agree with you on some level that there's. It's definitely a, you know, it's not a clean cut situation. I think we all have a lot of empathy for a woman in that situation. We also have some squeamishness about it, and all of those feelings are perfectly normal and valid. But at the end of the day, what's being decided legally is whether or not we are going to punish women who have abortions. Who, I mean, the infanticide here is like an, obviously an analogy for the much less traumatic abortion. You know what? My uh, there was another argument that came up in this abortion thing, and it was um, about women who were at the border who were being sterilized. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, historically in the United States, people have been black. Black women have been sterilized. Mm-hmm. Um, they did. They did a lot of stuff on in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican women were sterilized, and and that sort of thing. And you, you, there's, I'm on, I'm, I'm, you know, people can tell me that I'm old or whatever because I'm already forty, but I'm also on. Um, TikTok, and I see a lot of people on TikTok who make videos, and on those videos, um, one person was talking about people being sterilized and and how white women can't seem to get their tubes tied. And I saw comment after comment after comment. It was just like thousands of comments, almost all white women saying, giving um, examples of when they couldn't get their tubes tied, and Mm -hmm. yet there were women that the story that we, the video was about um, a Spanish woman, a doctor who mm-hmm. accidentally, she thought it was accidental that her tubes got tied when she went for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, when, when she started investigating that there were other women of color who, and she was a doctor and mm-hmm. there were other women of color who had their tubes tied and that sort of thing. Um, um, you know, they, they were made to sign, the parents were made to sign forms um, for, what do you call it, birth control. And mm-hmm. it turns out that it was really um, a consent to get their tubes tied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those those people are still adults right now who never had children. Mm-hmm. So she went and she did an investigation and she found out all of these masses of other women of color who got their tubes tied without their consent or knowledge. And then she... In the same, under the same video, thousands of white women who say they can't get their tube style without their husband, husband's consent mm-hmm. or some other reasons. And then it, it's clear to me that there's something going on. Yeah, why for sure. Why all of a sudden um, abortion is this? And so there, it's, it's, it's very. Well, what do you mean by something going on? Because, I mean, you're completely right that there has been a long history in this country of non-consensual tubal ligations performed yeah, disproportionately on women of color as a form of population control yeah, without, you know, without their consent. And that exactly. does contrast quite sharply with these stories of, I've seen also 
many young white women who doctors just don't believe them when they say they don't want to have children and refuse to tie their tubes until they've either had a bunch of children. You know, they'll only basically tie your tubes if you've already had kids and you're like 35. And even some who say they've had kids already still can't get their tubes done. Mm -hmm. That's the story. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, to me, well, when I say there's something going on, to me, it seems like there's something going on. A, maybe to try to start controlling people's bodies, telling, you know, and which is is dangerous because you don't need people to have legislations where um, they can check. and, And if you had an abortion or if you did something and they can imprison you for it or if there's something to me there's something going on because why all of a sudden this is an issue it really should be about the person and their their doctor why is this going on to me yeah. there's something going on there's something racial going on that they're you know they're num- they think that their numbers are going down and there's too many people of color now and blah 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 and i think that's what's going on I really do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, there there are people who think that there's, you know, labor implications for all of this and you got to, you know, it's like a, they want there to be, uh, you know, more uh, demand, I guess. I mean, like they need to be more workers so that corporations have more control over who they hire and who they can fire indiscriminately. There being this kind of um, these labor opportunities that existed post COVID are making a lot of people squeamish and uncomfortable because people are withholding their labor and asking for more and Popeye's or was it Chick-fil-A today that was begging people to work the lunch break for five fit sandwiches an hour and all this nonsense that's going on. So there are people who say that this is all really about trying to get our population numbers up for those reasons. And also because they're all ginning up for the war with China and there's no way we have the numbers on that one and all kinds of plots and theories that, you know, at this point, I'll, nothing seems that off base, you know, every, yeah. every, every conspiracy theory seems pretty credible and late stage. Well, well, you know, you know, the argument that you had with about Tucker Carson and, and, and this thing about great replacement, great replacement. Mm-hmm. I think it's really about the replacement. I think people are very concerned that their numbers are going down and they want to be, and they don't want to be replaced. And I think they still don't, I, I don't think, I don't buy the argument that it's labor. I think they couldn't care less if, People of color went away. Mm. They just want their numbers up. And I, I think it's all about that. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, we'll we'll see. But, you know, we do have to kind of think about how we feel about this from a kind of independent kind of moral standpoint. And I think your point about bodily autonomy is where I keep coming back to. And at the end of the day, I feel like if I have a right, I mean, if you have a right to commit suicide and the baby's in there... <laughs> I mean, like, what you going to do? <laughs> as long as the baby's inside you, I have a hard time parsing how the mother doesn't just have full control. Moral judgments aside, how you just don't get to do whatever you want with the thing that's, like, literally within the, con- the confines of your skin. But I appreciate you calling in, um, Jasmine. We've covered a range of interesting subjects, and I appreciate you. All right. Thank you very much. For All right. Me. All right. Take care. Keep the faith. I'm seeing Eddie looks like a new face with his shades on toward the back of the line. How are you doing this evening, Eddie? Uh, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Wow, a little nervous. This is my first time calling in. Uh, first time I called your show live. Um, Welcome. I just want to give you a little bit of praise. Um, long time calling listener, even longer bad faith watcher. I think you're uh, having some of the best conversations on these here interwebs. Um, appreciate uh-huh. you. 
my questions are pretty, pretty fluff, pretty non-substantive. Uh, so I apologize to your audience for not engaging in some of these deeper topics. Uh, your audience is so smart, uh, so educated. Um, no need to apologize. I'm sure it'll be good. What's on your mind? Uh, first off, actually, you made some kind of news. You made a little lefty news. You're going on TYT to talk to Jink, potentially. Um, <sighs> I see a lot of folks in there saying, don't do it, don't do it. Yo, I'm telling you, do that shit. Please <laughs> do that shit. Air his ass out. Do to him what you did to Sam Cedar, please, right? For us, for the people, right? Please well, look, the, the irony of that is I thought the Sam Cedar conversation, you know, was frustrating at times because we disagreed, but I thought it was civil and it went well. And I had absolutely zero animosity toward him as a person when it ended. All of the stuff went down like the next day on Twitter right. when apparently he became frustrated by the public's response to the debate. And then decided to say a bunch of stuff that I thought was overly personal and not very nice. True. But, you know, the debate itself, I mean, I thought the debate itself was very constructive. And I hope to also have a constructive conversation with Chang. No, it was extremely constructive. You conducted yourself really well. And you offered points and facts. And he got in his feelings. <laughs> right? You talk about how he got shouted at and shit. Mm-hmm. This black woman was screaming at me. Like, he kind of exposed himself. I think so I, all the I'm word he used was like, admonished. I admonished <laughs> him. Right. <laughs> right. 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 His feces was really hurt. And, and I just cathartically would love to see that happen again with Jim Huger, who, you know, full disclosure, like, I, you know, TYT was my gateway into like this sort of lefty discourse, lefty politics. And then uh, I grew up, right? Then I got smart, mm-hmm. I got more information and I moved away from them. Um, yeah, just to get to my questions, uh, I don't want to take up too much time. I'm sure you got much smarter, substantive callers and calls to get to. Um, so I, I just joined a, a socialist alternative, or maybe like hey, a month cool. ago. I'm a, I'm a new member. Um, joined a North Brooklyn chapter. Somebody in my cool. chapter told me that you're a member of ours. Yeah, because there's no DC one. Yeah, now uh, you're gonna okay. call me out for not going to meetings in a while. Where you been at? Where you oh. at? Because it's virtual, man, <laughs> and it's just it's like another Skype call I have to get on in the middle of the week. No, listen, <laughs> no what really happened is um, they were on Thursdays. The meetings were on Thursdays. And it conflicted with, started to conflict with, started to conflict with like call in time. I think there were like eight on Thursdays, right? I mean, we're, Seven, we're, we're Tuesdays now, but like, I mean, I, no, okay. I'm, just giving you, I'm giving you shit. I know you had to doing the Lord's work, so I need, I need to stress it. No, really, but I was going, I was going pretty regularly up until this, about the time I moved to this apartment, I'd say. So like yeah, yeah. early this year into last year. And yeah. that's also around the time I started doing call in was last November. And it was like. Also, why are they doing it during dinner time always? It's like, I'm always <laughs> hungry as hell. But never mind. Never mind. Right. Go no, ahead. I, I feel you. I feel you. Totally. I know you're you know, working hard in D.C. Um, second question, because um, I watched your, your segment you had on, um, I guess, um, The View. I guess Whoopi put her foot in her mouth again. Uh, mm-hmm. Returning points USA and whatnot. She tends to do that a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I actually met her, by the way. I'm, I'm an actor out here in Brooklyn. I kind of got a chance to meet her and work with her. Oh yeah, how was it? Um, how was she? I mean, no, I, listen, I very much admire her as an actress, right? Comedian. Right. Same. Whoopi is a legend, absolute legend in the game. Her politics are trash. I mean, she's straight up. <laughs> and granted, I wasn't even as far left as radical as I was when I worked with her. But like, I you know that's why we never even got into anything political. It was just straight about the work, about the art, about the craft. And she's an absolute queen. Like it's a bucket list thing. To work mm-hmm. with that woman, but I was—it got me thinking about a question that I kind of always think about when I listen to your show. I'm like, you know what? The View's been trying to find someone to fill Megan McCain's shoes to kind of stir the pot a little bit and make it interesting. You know what I mean? I guess they found someone today. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, she used to be on the Hill. 
Right. Yeah, I think I saw her on the hill a couple of times when I used to kind of watch it. I can't watch the hill unless you or Ole are on there personally. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of check some of that shit that comes out of Robbie's mouth. I kind of agree with Eric on that, on that regard. But um, I was thinking, like, if they really wanted to stir the pot on the view, like, really wanted to shake shit up, they would mm-hmm. have a fucking leftist on there to mm-hmm. check some of that stuff coming out of Whoopi's mouth and Sonny's mouth. They really would. Mm-hmm. And also, like, what 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 incredible opportunity it would be to expose that sort of audience of like stay at home moms and shit to these ideas that we have. You mm-hmm. know, on the left. My question is, would would you take that job that they offer you? Because you got the cachet, you got the knowledge, you got the intellect. You know what I'm saying? You know how to come up with these points. Would you take like, oh no, you know, I'm gonna turn around. And turn no, bag. I have always I'm said I'm I'm not joking. Okay, think less of me, whatever. I'm not joking when I say that my dream has always been to be on The View. And I used to say it like, oh, like, oh, I, I want to be a Major League Baseball player. You know, like something that you want yeah. but is completely not in the realm of possibility. And then my life took a little bit of a turn. And it, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's actually going to happen. But it doesn't feel as implausible as it did when I was, you know, sitting at my computer at my law firm five years ago. So, no, I completely agree with you. I think that it would be a much more interesting show to have a leftist on there in addition to a conservative or in lieu of the conservative either way. And I think, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know why they don't understand that, but my, I'm I'm constantly reminded that when I step out of my own little bubble the majority of the world just has no idea what's going on in left politics. Like they just are exactly. so, they're exactly. just so naive. They do not know what's even happening. They they're so confused. Right. Um, and I don't like, it's, it's not even on their radar. So I strongly, it, if, even if it weren't me, if it were, you know, Crystal or Katie or, you know, whomever, I, I think it, well, it would be fabulous. I, I, think, I think, here's the thing. I think having you on there or say another lefty strong intelligent black woman would be more powerful because then right <laughs> that would be a, a sufficient counter to Whoopi and sunny you feel me like they, they there's certain areas they wouldn't be able to challenge you on you know what i mean because that's what they're not gonna let three black women on there <laughs> that's very, probably true that's probably, and also they don't probably want real lefty ideas coming out of uh abc or whatever network it's up you know what I mean? But like, I just, sometimes I wow. fantasize about getting that message out to that crowd, that huge, massive crowd of people that watch that fucking show to hear some of these ideas and then kind of wake up and be like, damn, you know what? Yeah, both of these parties are fucking corrupt. Damn, maybe we should like do something a little different. And I, I think about like maybe you or like, I don't know, Tess and Figaro on there or like maybe Savvy Savs from RBS and just somebody else that's kind of like, you know what I mean? That has the cash to kind of talk about some of these things on the left. Um, but yeah, that's good to know. Um, Last question, uh, Super Fluff. I know you're a Trekkie. Uh, I know you love these space right? or whatever. What's your favorite Star Trek movie? I never heard you talk about the movies. Have you seen the movies? Like all of them? Hello? Love, were you there? Take my watch.
Yeah, I'm seeing you in chat. People say they can't hear you, Bree, if that uh, helps at all. <laughs> no, I can't do that. I'm not. I'm not a show host at all, y'all. I see the comments. I don't know how to do this shit. Bree is, is is the queen of that. Let's see if we can get her back. <clears throat> um we in the comments here y'all um not sure what happened to Bree. um hope she's okay hope everything's all right on her end i'm from detroit originally people asking i've been out in brooklyn for 13 years um Hopefully we can get Bree back, our illustrious host. You know, people saying the field of time, yo, I'm not, a, <laughs> I don't do this. You know what I mean? I don't have a talk show on the internet. I don't know how to do this shit. That's why I listen most of the time. Um, I'm just trying to wait for Bree to get back. Uh, <laughs> not sure what happened. 
I think I hear something. Bree? Hey, guys. I'm so sorry my phone died. <laughs> okay, cool. My apologies. I was standing here talking to myself for the longest time also. My bad. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, your, your crowd was asking me to fill time. I'm like, what? I don't know what, those, what I'm doing. <laughs> this is not my job. What have you guys been talking about? Listen. Nothing. I've been like silent pretty much the whole time. Um, I don't know if you heard my last my last little fluff question. Did you hear that part? I don't think so. It was it was it was just about you being a Trekkie and like had you seen the Trek movies, any of the Star Trek movies, and what was your favorite one? That's all. Oh yeah, of course I'm a Trekkie. I was talking to Robbie actually about this the other day, and I think my favorite movie is um, First Contact. There Here's you go. The Thank you. Yes. It's got Alfre Wittard in it. I, I, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's the most well-rounded one to me. I think it's the most accessible one. It's got action. It's got humor. It's got everything in there. It's got backstory to the whole Star Trek universe. Yes. It's fucking it's, perfect. It's got right? the guy from Babe as Zephyrin Cochran. It's got the Borg Queen. It's got Data with a little bit of emotions and some skin. Right. Like, Data and the Queen getting it on a little bit. Yes. It's got to t- tell you what happened on Earth before, like they met, they met aliens, met the Vulcans, like yeah. it's fucking dope. That, that was a magical moment when you see that first contact at the end of the movie. Like I don't know, that gave me chills. Like that's why I'm here for Star Trek. That's what hooked me in that movie. I like, really hooked me into the whole. Like I was a new, I went through a phase where I was like next generation all the way through like high school, but then like that movie came out. I was like, oh, okay, this is the shit. So yeah, yeah, that's all. That's all I have, Bree. Uh, appreciate everything you do. Thank okay, you well, thank time. you for holding down the fort for everyone, Eddie. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Can't hold a candle to you, Brie. <laughs> Stop. All right, keep the faith, my friend. Peace. All right. Um, let's try John. You seem new, John. Can you unmute yourself, John? Hello, can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? Excellent. And uh, first of all, I concur with you and Eddie. Um, first contact all the way. I keep waiting for the Vulcans to come down any day now and be like, hey, <laughs> we're going to help you guys out. We <laughs> got to get new- our acts together first. <laughs> I know. I they keep. Uh, I have some running uh, jokes at work with a couple of Trekkies. And um, we keep saying they keep flying by and they're like, this is the ghetto. We'll come back later. Like, <laughs> Do you know that, that song that that girl, uh, that young woman wrote during the pandemic? <laughs> The earth is ghetto. I want to leave. I'm going to yep. get my spaceship or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that was a banger. I, I do think of I do think of Vulcans when I listen to that song. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, huge fan, huge fan. I first uh, actually found out from you through the, uh, what is it, Rising the Hill. Uh, and then that led me over to Bad Fate. So I'm happy to be here. But Cool, get, great. To, yes, uh, to get. Uh, directly to the topic of the uh, podcast tonight. You know, in my opinion, I do see that there are some problems on the left where they're, I guess, so-called, you know, eating themselves. Uh, And I think that sometimes it can be conflated with being accountable or being moral or being diverse or inclusive. And I think we sometimes... Uh, I know I've done this myself and I've had to kind of catch myself and be like, wait, you're, you're overreacting on something. You're, you know, I'm a, you know, sometimes the left is conflating like honest mistakes or like learning opportunities. And we're confusing that with like malice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
we have to find a way to work on that, you know, and for example, um, a couple of examples that have like recently come to, you know, anecdotally to me, um, you know, during your recent interview with Esperanza and Kim Iverson, you know, Esperanza essentially said that if anyone advocates for the right of someone to dead name, you know, they're a transphobe, even if it's based on like constitutional free speech principles. Um, it's kind of troubling to me. You know, I'm a, a gay mixed race man. My my husband is a different race than I am. Uh, and, you know, he's in the military. And mm-hmm. you know, it just deeply concerns me when I hear many people on the left, you know, being so flippant or hypocritical with like free speech principles. Um, and I'm kind of like, I used to think that was just on the fringe right where they were the hypocrites with free speech, you know, and, you know, more directly to that kind of Esperanza piece, I, you know, I'm a gay man and I support anyone's right to go stand on the corner and say homophobic slurs, even though I think it's abhorrent, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. They are not on the right side of history. They will be proven wrong, you know, mm-hmm. uh, by future generations. We still have to say they have the right to do that, even if it's wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, they eventually get shunned themselves, you know, they'll eventually shun themselves and kind of write their own, uh, you know, fate and they'll fall out of favor with the public. But kind of that part concerns me. And I, I guess it's a form of cannibalism because, you know, maybe someone would just now label me a homophobe, but I'm a gay man. You know? <laughs> well, I've, I've been there. It's, uh, people certainly haven't hesitated to call me, you know, anti-Black and self-hating and every other kind of thing for making similar kinds of arguments. I mean, look, look, it's, it's, I, I, I understand that there are in fact many people making bad faith arguments about dead naming because they do really want a dead name. Just like for years and years, people instigated these conversations about, but okay, but why can't I say the N word? And it's all about them. just, So that's obviously true. At the same time, I have not always felt this way in my life, in my younger years. But these days, if somebody asks me, why can't I say the N-word, my response would be, say it. Go ahead, say it. Right, no, say right. It. Go ahead, say it. We're on camera, say it. <laughs> exactly. That's that's the same. And maybe it comes with age and wisdom. Because, you know, in my early 20s, I was kind of... I guess I was more of a fighter, I guess. I was like, you you can't say that. You know, no, that's awful. Mm-hmm. I want to stop you. And then, you know, you get to your, your late 30s and you're like, ah, uh, actually say it. You know, just say it. Like, you're going to look bad. You're going to be on the losing side of things. Uh, you know, I believe I do have the moral high ground, you know, that gay people should be treated with, uh, you know, dignity and respect and afforded the same rights. And, you know, let's see whose argument wins, someone who's saying homophobic slurs or me doing something in a, you know, a peaceful way and trying to be more neutral. But back to the the cannibalism piece, you know, something that's recently come up in, you know, uh, to a close friend of mine, for example, Um, She was organizing uh, after the Dobbs decision came out. uh, And, uh, you know, she was told by one of the event organizers, you know, her event, her poster wasn't inclusive and that she shouldn't bring it to the protest because it said women on it instead of birthing people. And mind you, what was the context of this? It was a uh, after the Dobbs decision came out, mm-hmm. uh, protesting, you know, you know, but advocating who, for the right the to one, abortion. Who's the one that said that the post she shouldn't bring the, the, this person shouldn't bring their poster to the 
protest. The event kind of organizer who kind of mm-hmm. organized this on a Facebook group uh, mm-hmm. kind of indicated that, you know, you need to use more inclusive language like birthing people, birthing person. And mind you, my my close friend, she, you know, we've been friends for about 15 years now. She's a women and gender studies major. So she's I like to say, like, I go to her and I go, you know, you're you're a quote unquote more woke or more educated on these subject matters, you know. Tell me about these things. Like, how do you as a woman, you know, how does these these things work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was kind of even taken aback by that. She's like, what is this? You know, mind you, she's the same age range as I am. So maybe <laughs> that's a thing. But uh, um, just things like that. You know, I also have an example of like a colleague of mine just saying kind of informal chat conversation at work saying, have a great day, guys. You know, being mm-hmm. told hey, why did you say guys? That's not inclusive of everybody. And then like kind of getting hounded for just things that aren't being done in a spiteful, hateful, malice way. Like there are people out there who will intentionally say guys to someone they know is a transgender woman. There are people out there who do hateful things. Yes. But it just seems like to me that is just it's so self-defeating when you're just nitpicking the people who are already on your side, already on your team. It, it does seem like there is some like infighting going on there, whether we want to like address it and talk about it or just act like it doesn't exist. Well, I guess (laughs) I I might not characterize that as, well, look, the left is broad, right? But I, (laughs) I characterize that as more of a a liberal in, emphasis yeah i don't know that the left like the political left the bernie left the Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call the materialist left is as invested in that kind of language policing as liberals are are. right right my feeling is that our prioritization of some of these material issues it's not that we don't care about the other things but it it keeps it, it's a, it's helpful. It, it, it helpfully keeps us from engaging too much, like <laughs> into the depths of where the ide- identity politics stuff can get a little wanky, get, get a little awkward. I right. will say that, like, I understand completely emotionally how it must feel to not ever know if people are acting in good faith or bad faith. I like viscerally right. understand that, and I don't want to seem unsympathetic. I have. There was a moment someone someone caught me on on the on the talk with Esperanza and Kim where I went to say you guys and then I was like well how will this be perceived I kind of caught myself but somebody heard me start that way and, and mentioned it on one of the call-in episodes and it's true I'm not mad like I I want to be sensitive but sometimes I will also make mistakes and that's what that right. was you, you know? just want that forgiveness you want more empathy from like other people like, oh, you made a mistake. You slipped up. It's okay. Like you don't have a track record of continuously doing something, you know? Right. And that's the thing. I, I just, I do feel like even though it's hard, the obligation is if you want to be effective and understood to assume everyone's acting in good faith. Okay. Not everyone, everyone. I'm not saying like uh, Richard Spencer or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? But on the whole, when you can, p- normal people you're interacting with in daily life, mm-hmm. I think you, the presumption has to be that they're operating in good faith. Because even when they're not, right. when there's third parties observing and you seem like you're being reasonable and open and they are being bad faith actors, you 
you get your message across. People can right. see who the good guy is and the bad guy is. If you flare up and start acting crazy mm-hmm. and oh, accusatory and perhaps accusing people of things that it's not really clear that they've done, then right. the tables are going to flip real quick. And I'm not saying I always land this balance right. I, right. I don't think any I of us can. I'm rising sometimes. <laughs> you know, we're, we're human. We're doing the best we can. But especially when I know I'm being watched. You know, especially when I'm, I'm, I'm like modeling behavior because I'm on TV, I'm on camera, like I'm on people in front of people, you know, especially in these mixed audiences, like rising, like there are things that I want to say sometimes, but it's like, am I going to be heard? Am I going to be understood? Like today, I don't know if you saw this segment about um, the okay. the Nazi groups outside of TPUSA. Like, yes, yes. It's, it's difficult because, you know, in my head, <laughs> in my heart, what do I believe? I believe that they, 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 um, what do you call it? Dog whistle to white supremacist groups all the time, nonstop. Oh, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yes. That's why the Nazis are there. Like, yes. <laughs> A equals B. Like, it's not complicated. <laughs> like, right. However, I know that one, I actually haven't been following the story that closely. So, you know, grain of salt. Two, like, there is a difference between flirting with Nazis and being an open Nazi, I guess. And fine, I guess. <laughs> Three, you know, <laughs> they were protesting for TPS, uh, TPUSA to be more like them. So yeah. that evidence is that they aren't fully the same as them. You know, like, and if I like TPUSA, which is not explicitly white supremacist, like right. or not, not explicitly white supremacist. And you hear someone like me saying, you must have really liked these Nazis. You must have really wanted them to be there. Then I lose credibility. Right. I do. Exactly. And it's difficult because I'm being, these are all things that I wouldn't talk about if I were given my druthers, but here I am on rising. <laughs> here we go. Let's do this. And it's like, I got to either sit there and pretend that there's absolutely no correlation between these Nazis showing up. Brie, I'll just tell you this. You fake it till you make it so well. You you really are doing a service. (laughs) You really are. I do I do sense those tense moments. I'm like, wow, she just seems really constrained right now. And she's just she's being civil and polite, which I think she's a model representation of what civility should look like, you know. But sometimes I'm like, wow, she's just really letting the, the opposition kind of pull one, but um, I do appreciate what you do on there. That's, that's not my fight. If, if, if Robbie, you know, look, the view was wrong. You know, oh, they, yeah, like, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg, she went too far and they had to walk it back. And if Whoopi Goldberg had just stayed within the bounds and said, you know, done the Tucker Carlson thing, Tucker Carlson, people need to take a couple notes from Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson knows how to say, hey, I'm just asking questions. Are they showing up? Hey, look, are they right, showing right. up at regular RNC events? Are they showing up at DNC events? Are they showing up at Planned Parenthood events? Are they showing up at, you know, climate action events? Right, right. At the congressional baseball game? Are they showing up at the hot dog eating contest? No. They're showing up <laughs> at TPUSA. Why do you I, think that is? I'm just there, asking questions. I think you're you're kind of touching on a good point there that um, back to like the free speech or maybe this is more of a, a broad thinking of like a knowledge or education or, you know, being inclusive of different thoughts. You know, I find Tucker Carlson to be an abhorrent individual or at least his segments on Fox News to be something I highly disagree with. Uh, 
often sometimes they they feel like I've lowered a couple of IQ points when I watch some of them, but I do watch them because I want to know where someone else is coming from who is in that mindset so I can actually mm-hmm. communicate with them. And I feel like that's something we shouldn't be afraid to do instead of just saying, I'm only going to watch Bree or I'm only going to watch Robbie or Tecker Carlson or Kim Iverson, or I'm only going to watch these one people uh, instead of ever exposing ourselves to different viewpoints, even if you completely find them abhorrent. Mm-hmm. We have to do that to actually be civil and to communicate. But I do want to bring up, because you did ask us to kind of touch on our thoughts on the uh, Andrew Yang Freedom Party mm-hmm. or what, uh, Forward Party. What are they calling it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I find just because an undergrad, I did take a couple of courses, either, you know, international relations and comparative politics, where I really was sold on what a lot of our European kind of Western counterparts do in the parliamentarian system. And I currently hold the opinion, uh, and increasingly so with the dysfunction in our government, that yes, we, you know, our founding fathers had a wonderful, you know, start uh, to something not really new, but kind of a new spin on it. And that was great 200 some odd years ago. Mm-hmm. But we are facing those structural issues now where it does need to change. And I do think, you know, we're talking about is the left eating itself or is that a liberal thing or is that a broader left thing? And, you know, is our tent big enough? I think we're running into the issue where we can't keep fitting into two big tents. This does it. People don't work like that naturally. And it's obviously resulted in gridlock. You know, half the country hates one another or you know, we get into these mindsets if it's black or white, one or two, and it's anything but that, because there are gray areas, there are left, there are liberals, there are progressives, there are moderate, you know, centrists who lean left, there are, you know, Green Party, there are libertarians, there are different people. And, you know, I I don't want to bitch about the left just eating itself and us having all these problems. You know, I will tell you, I believe our solution is a multi-party system, because Mm -hmm. it does create more coalition building. So, for example, uh, not a lot of people know this uh, if you're not from Europe, but, you know, when a party gets elected, you know, you could have, let's say, hypothetically, the liberal and the progressive party, you know, they may get a lot of votes, but they can't actually form a supermajority to actually take control of the executive. So they actually have to coalesce and they have to say, okay, well, we're going to partner up with the the liberals and the progressives are going to partner up. So we'll get a controlling stake in the executive and have the, the majority. But that also means that, hey, the liberals get to be prime minister, but some of these cabinet picks get to be uh, progressives. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a much more integrated system. You have you have to you actually have to coalition build. You actually mm-hmm. have to hear these multiple views. Whereas I feel like right now with the Democrats, at least it's just corporatist Democrats feigning interest in progressive ideals or liberal ideals even. Mm-hmm. Uh and they're, they love, I'm a gay man, of course, they love to try to, you know, hey, hey, we're the only ones who care about you. Don't vote mm-hmm. for us automatically because mm-hmm. you have to. Same on the right. You know, in other countries, there are conservative evangelical fringe people. There are Nazi fringe people, but they mm-hmm. don't get a controlling stake in government where everyone's listening to them like the Republican Party is. And I'm like, mm-hmm. again, solution we've got to stop this, this boxing in on left, you know, Democrat or Republican. We need greater representation of different opinions and thoughts. Yeah. Your your point about the Republicans needing more 
you know, representation opportunities is, I think, really important, especially when you look at the forward party. I said this yeah. on Rising today. It's confusing to me that liberals are simultaneously, and it's a lot of people on the left, are simultaneously very, very angry <laughs> at the forward party for its potential spoiler effect, and also angry at the forward party for being mostly just Republicans. And it's like, okay, but if you think it's mostly just Republicans and it's going to appeal to Republicans, then isn't this what you want? It's going to spoil yes. the Republicans. <laughs> exactly. You can't have it both ways. Exactly. Do you want and- it to be more liberal? Like, then join it. <laughs> And influence it. Yeah. And then that's great. Exactly. I could imagine a future where we have multiple parties and perhaps, uh, you know, a progressive party builds a coalition with this forward party. Because honestly, uh, I'm thinking this forward party is going to be a bunch of moderate Republicans who have somewhat liberal social leanings, maybe more conservative, you know, economic leanings, you know, Mm -hmm. building coalitions. And I think we should be invested in that, you know. I was pissed off, too, that people voted for Hombre, you know, during the Hillary Clinton election or Jill Stein and all that stuff. But I'm like, I can kind of see why. I mean, honestly, Brie, with this 2024 election, I don't want to vote for Joe Biden just because he's the lesser of two evils against a potential Donald Trump. I, I'm tired of having those choices. I actually want more choices now. Welcome, welcome to the club. You know, I, I got to say, I was a proud Jill Stein voter in New York City in 2016. Right. I stood in line with my Jill Stein pin on at PS whatever it was, a little elementary school <laughs> near my house in the West Village. And I have not regretted it a day. Now, I know I there was no risk associated with my vote since I was in a blue state. But I respect people who made all kinds of decisions because at the end of the day, I have come to believe that Vote Blue, no matter who, does nothing but create the person's perverse incentives that you're describing here with the Democratic Party, where they don't actually have to do anything that even resembles caucusing with progressives, because they know they always have the threat that, like, aren't we better than the Republicans? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, something I I don't know if you were on the rising segment. My memory is not what it once was as I'm getting older. (laughs) I I watched a segment where there, you know, these employee resource groups that are often touted by, uh, you know, more liberal leaning companies where they want that appearance. And I'm as a gay man, I feel that so much that all of these uh, corporatist type groups and backgrounds or the Joe Bidens of the world are, you know, in bad faith, reaching out to me, telling me that they care about my interest in my life and all these things, X, Y, and Z. But in the same turn, they'll advocate to keep my wages low or mm-hmm. keep me in a, you know, not access to health care, X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I'm over it. I see through mm-hmm. it. And I not codify a burger fella either. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Don't get me started. <laughs> but um, those are just kind of some of my thoughts. Um, I, I I don't know if I'll be called a moderate or a you know whatever, but uh, I'm I, I do think the way forward is whether you like the forward party or not is we've got to have different political parties. Let's open the doors. These big tents are they've got holes in them, and it's time to to replace them. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's funny that like Democrats really emphasize the big tent thing. There was some really good interview. Was it on many Hassan? Somebody just called somebody out for doing this big tent shtick. Um, but, the, but the thing about the big tent, people say like, well, if it's not a big tent, then you're not like building the coalition. But they're, you're raising this really interesting idea, which is that the coalition is better built if you actually have the smaller tents. If it's just the one big tent, 
then you're just in some weird coercive bullying situation. <laughs> you are. You're in a big tent that's already owned and occupied by people. And they're just like, hey, we're giving you guys a little. It's like at a wedding, you know, when you get seated next to somebody, you know, a group of people you don't know <laughs> or like. They're like, yeah, we own the venue and everything. And this is great for us. And we're the, the you know, we're the, the bride and groom or groom and groom, whatever the hell. Uh, mm -hmm. We're the wedding party and we're up here. You all get to stare at us and eat luxuries and have a good right. time. Meanwhile, you're all seated next to people that don't like each other. So that's our <laughs> big tent. I'm like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Whole episode. Let me get, um, I'm going to try to get Andrew back on soon and we'll get into this forward step. I have had, you know, I have raised my concerns about some of the aspects of the forward party, I, uh, I would consider being literally involved if I, I think my line is really they got in, they got to stop with the corporate donations. Like on mm -hmm. principle, I could get on board with a party where the basic principle was we're going to get, you know, we support third parties. We try to get ballot access for third parties. We support yeah. ranked choice voting. We don't take corporate donations. Like, I wonder though how Bree, bad could like, a party be if that was the like the baseline <laughs> you know but I wonder if it's and again uh, uh, where I'm I'm being a hypocrite if it's really they have to accept them at this point to get any movement and steam you know to be able to to have that financial backing mm -hmm. To, to be able to lift the rocket off the, the launch pads, figuratively speaking, you know, they, they need to be able to do that. And the only way they can get enough funding and influence is through corporate donations. Now, well, John, I, Bernie you know, out fundraised everybody in 2020. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, but this, this is what I was trying to explain. Like, you're not going to get the grassroots funding if you do it this way. You just no one's ever going to trust you. So you got to decide. I hope you, I hope that corporate money is real good because no grassroots progressives are ever going to give you a dime as long as you're taking that money. But if you trusted the process, if you trust the process, you'd be getting money from me. You would. I 100% I have to give money. Also, they have to be anti-war. I think that's the other prong, which should be fine for because conservatives are – leading that charge to be honest right now <laughs> at least with respect Sadly, to the, yes. two, the two parties so <laughs> if it was an anti-war anti-war anti-corporate donation um and you know ballot access kind of a party like i think that would have really broad appeal agree you know, robbie and i could be a part of that party we wouldn't vote exactly. for the same candidates on that ticket, <laughs> but you know, a Marianne could be on that ticket if they wanted to, and Andrew could be on that oh, ticket if they wanted to, Marianne. and a Justin Amish yeah. could be on that ticket if you wanted to. Exactly, exactly. <sighs> All right, John. Thank you for calling in. It's been nice talking to you. You too. You take care. All right, and now we are at uh, eleven o'clock. We've gone two and a half hours. You guys have been great. I've appreciated you. It's been a long week and I got a pizza that arrived shortly before we started filming that I look forward to consuming while I watch the season finale of Fuckboy Island. That's right, folks. This is how Brianna Joy Gray decompresses at the end of the week. I will see you on Monday for an interesting COVID and monkeypox themed episode. Monkeypox is on the mind. Take care of yourselves. Treat each other well. This community matters. I don't care what they say. Love you guys. See you soon.
got their hungry starving, nothing to eat, and the homeless living out on the street, and the sick are dying, cricket police, politicians lying, criminals on the street. I got five old fuel if you need it from me. I sit in the back if we riding too deep. Better lock the door, these people are still in cheap. Roll the windows off so we can ride off in peace. Oh, earth is ghetto. I want to leave. Oh, earth is ghetto. I want to leave. I want to leave. Oh, I've been down here stranded indefinitely. I can't reach my planet, but I need to leave. You should see these people. It's hard to believe how they treat each other.